an audience is one to many. It's Nick posting videos. It's Sam posting a podcast. A community is many to many. And it has to have like a location in which that's happening, whether it's physical or digital. And the way that you know you have one or the other is quit creating content for a month and come back and what happens or with a community, you, the creator, quit making stuff for a month and you should come back and you should have more. It should be more content, more interactions than when you left. It, it should grow like exponential because it's many to many. But it's like if you quit creating content, VPN is not going to go away. But like Nick Bear's relevance will be. Before jumping into this episode, I want to thank you for tuning in and spending your time with me. Every watch and listen truly does matter. Now, we've decided to not take on any sponsors for this podcast because we don't want to interrupt your listening experience. But if you do want to support me, you can head over to bpnsups.com for all of your performance, endurance, and wellness supplement needs. We offer a wide range of products from amazing tasting protein powders, effective pre-workouts, green superfoods, multivitamins, sleep support, and much more. I spent the last decade building this brand, community, and product offering, and I'm extremely thankful that it has helped so many people. So if you are in need of a new supplement routine, head over to bpnsups.com and use code NICKBEAR10 to save 10% off your order. Now let's jump right into this episode. Today on the podcast, we have Sam Parr, founder of The Hustle, which was acquired by HubSpot in 2021, creative artist and genius, co-host of My First Million podcast, and owner of Marathon Ranch, which is something I'm very excited to talk about throughout this conversation. That's funny. I wouldn't have thought, I don't think that that is an impressive enough thing to mention in an introduction, but I'll take it. I, from, from my perspective, since I got to Texas in 2014, I've been looking for property. I have toured dozens of properties with real estate agents, walked properties ranging from eight acres to 120 acres. So it's always been my dream to own a ranch in Texas. You got to do it. Now's the time too. Now's a decent time. If you can get better financing than a 7% mortgage rate, but now's a good time. Prices are down. Um, yeah, all those things are true. And then I have a new thing, Hampton. That's my, that's, that's more impressive than Marathon Ranch, which is, uh, my new business. But, um, but yeah, the hustle that was, uh, I sold that a little while ago. That's a big thing. I think it's read by three and a half million people a day. But when we sold it, it was like closer to two, but they've grown it nicely. It's impressive. Yeah, it's good. It's good. I didn't think it was going to turn out to be that big. That's for sure. Did which you, is which is what you were saying about your thing, uh, BPN. You were like, I don't, I don't know if this is actually going to be like a huge thing. I'm just going to build it forever. But yeah, things change as you get into it, like five or six years, right? I mean, your your head's just down, building, 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 and then you finally lift your head up at some point. And you're like, oh, I've actually we built something pretty impressive that not everyone else is building. Yeah, and you also think like this wasn't that hard. I mean, you, it, it is hard when you're doing it, but you're like, why would someone want to buy this? Why don't they just go make their own? You know what I mean? And then you realize you get out there in the world. And you're like, oh, that's because it really is actually hard. And most people don't take these risks and things like that. And so it kind of like you got to like get out and talk to people to realize, oh, I actually do have a sellable asset or I understand now why someone would want to buy this. Things like that. Right. So I, I've heard you say in in multiple interviews and podcasts before, I'm not a businessman. I'm an artist. And I would love for you to explain this because when I heard you say this, it resonated with me to my core. Because for the longest time, I'll get some context. For the longest time, you know, I started as a creative 
I started documenting my life on social media and, and building a brand and building a business because of just of pure passion and joy. And that's what I loved. And naturally it evolved into me becoming a quote unquote businessman and getting involved in the day-to-day operations and the numbers. And what I found is the more I got into the numbers and into the day-to-day and became more of a businessman, the less time I could spend on the creative. And it, it robbed me a lot of my passion and joy. So can you explain what that means to you? Yeah. So when you start a company, like for example, my first business or not my first, but one of my early businesses was this thing called the hustle. It was a daily email. It was like a tech and business newsletter. Uh, and I started it because before that I was, a, I was blogging. I would blog for years just for fun. And that was just like, um, it's almost like part like com- comedy where it's not funny, but in the, it's like, I, um, it's like performative art. You know what I mean? Like you like to see what you can, what you can say, what you, what like resonates with people, things like that. And then it's part like therapy where you just like to get it out there in the world, things like that. And then we saw that there was an opportunity. I was like, Oh, I think I could turn this into a big thing. Here's the math, whatever. And launching it was like art where it's like, you know, the, to drive hype around something and to like turn something into a movement that is very artistic, I think. And then once the business starts working, maybe that happens at like, it happens at different stages for everyone, but maybe at like, I don't know, 10 million a year in revenue, you see like, oh, wow, if we, if you just can look at a spreadsheet, you'd be like, oh, if we can, I think we could change this number from a 0.5 to a 1.2. And we do that by deploying this much capital here, hiring this much people here. And it's like optimizing. And that's like a, a manager almost can do that. And when I, and I, as a lot of small businesses, business owners, they have to be the one doing that. And you start getting into that and you start doing more and more and more of that. And you're like, shit, I'm now optimizing this spreadsheet, which is important, but that's not what I started. I didn't start this for that reason. I started this because I saw an opportunity and it w- my art is like pouncing on an opportunity and putting my texture and my art within that opportunity, not looking at this Excel sheet and figuring out how to get 1% conversion rate to 2% conversion rate and like doing that on like the, all this stuff. And there are a lot of people out there, I imagine your CEO is one of them, that they get joy from that. I did not get joy from that. And I hated that. And so what I realized was like when people talk about like Warren Buffett and everyone would talk about you should read him and I started reading his shit and I was like, oh, I hate this. This is the worst. I don't want to look at all these like financials and like try to figure out where the opportunity is. And then I like would dream about um, all these like hedge fund guys in New York. I'm like, oh, they're so rich. I want to be like that. And then I started talking to him like, oh, this is the lamest. You guys are just looking for like these loopholes, which are important. But like you're looking just like to take advantage of these like numbers and things like that. That is just so boring to me. And maybe they'll defend it and say they can find art in that. But I was like, I cannot stand that. I like building brands and creating movements and like convincing people that like what wasn't a thing is now a thing and you should buy into it. That to me is like the art. And that's why I like doing it. Not so much like, for example, like I didn't know the difference between revenue and cash flow, which is like a huge distinction. I didn't know that until like four years into our company. And like, I just couldn't stand to like read about all that stuff. And so it just bored me to death. And so that's why I think like I re- I came to the realization of I'm more of an artist where I like to do things that don't make a lot of logical sense. But then maybe a year after I've done them, it's like, oh yeah, it does make sense for these reasons. Not so much um, like a spreadsheet junkie where I enjoy like uh, finding opportunities just in numbers and like optimizing things like that. And also like tax strategy, all that stuff. When you talk to me about that stuff, I'm like, dude, I don't care. It means nothing to me. Just, I, just pay someone to do it. Yeah, I'm like, it, I mean, it, I don't care. I also thought that I cared a lot about money. It's more so I like winning and progression. But then like, 
I'm like, dude, I don't care about this money. Just like, you guys just figure it out. It, it doesn't matter to me. You know what I mean? So that's yeah. why I meant by that. No, I, I mean, that, that resonates a lot with me. You know, I think back to this early years of building BPN. I had no mentors in business. I had no background in business, but I, I found a brand that I wanted to build and I had so much passion behind it. What so was, was the brand that you wanted to build? What was the initial? Uh, so 2012, I saw this massive need in the market. It's when Jack 3D was really popular, Craze pre-workout was really popular, and all these products were being pulled off the market because they were popping positive with banned substances. Was it like NO Explode and all that stuff? Yeah, like that that time frame. Yeah. And Dude, uh, I remember taking that stuff and it felt like I was on cocaine. Like I mean, that was, was the first pre-workout I ever took. Yeah. And I, you know, it's funny, I was probably 17 years old when I bought my first pre-workout and I would it was NO Explode. And I would hide it in my bedroom under my bed because I didn't want my mom to find it. Yeah, I felt like a drug. <laughs> yeah, because I thought she thought I was like taking steroids or something. So I'd hide it and then I'd pull it out before going to the gym. And I remember I was taking, you know, pre-workout at the time. And this one day, my brother, who's three years younger than me, he, he pissed me off. And I just like, you know, I'm a, I'm a 17, 18 year old kid. Hormones are raging. I just like yelled back at him. I remember my brother saying, I remember this like it was yesterday. He's like, dude, why are you so angry? He's like, I'm on pre-workout, man. <laughs> I'm, I'm taking pre-workout. But that, I mean, that was like, that's why I wanted to start BPN is I saw this massive need in the market. And at the time I was mixing up my own supplements in my, my dorm room. I was buying ingredients in bulk. I was They're mixing like them up. Lab, I bet. It looked like it. You'd walk into my college dorm room. I'd have this scale and this scale only measured in grams, not milligrams. So in order to measure caffeine, you were just guessing. You know, I'd, I'd measure a gram of caffeine, then I'd back it off like half. And I had this scale in my dorm room. I was buying ingredients in bulk. I'd mix up pre-workout, and then I'd sell it to people on the dorm, you know, floor. So like, people would come to my door. They'd knock. They'd hand me five bucks. I'd hand them a white baggie of white oh powder. My God. So it looked like I was dealing drugs when I was in college. But, like, I had so much just, like, like that filled my cup. I was like, this This is what I want to do moving forward. And the vision was what? Like clean supplements or something? Uh, supplements that people could trust that, were, that, that didn't have proprietary blends that weren't pixie dusted with a small amount of really good ingredients that were dosed appropriately, like that people could actually trust that what they were taking was what was, you know, what they wanted and, and that's needed. that's the brand that you were going to create was a clean or I don't know what verbiage you'd use, but some type of like clean, trusted, high quality stuff. Uh, yeah, I, I really leaned into like uh, integrity, transparency, and service from, from the early stages of, of building the brand. You know, this is just me, this this 22-year-old kid sitting in a dorm room with no money to my name. I mean, I had maybe $15 in my bank account at any given time. Uh, and the only way I was able to build this company was by taking out a $20,000 loan and then finding a manufacturer in California and, and starting the whole process. But those first couple of years of building, when I say first couple of years, I'd say six, maybe even seven. It was just focusing on building brand, mm -hmm. like focusing on the product, the people, the brand, the message, the mission. And obviously when you focus on that, you don't focus on the P&L, the balance sheet, the finances, tax regulations. It becomes messy. You know, like you, you miss out on a lot of things. It you, does become messy, messy, but that shit figures itself out. The brand shit doesn't figure itself out. Yeah. 
that doesn't figure itself out. So I think it's actually okay to ignore that stuff. Like, even if you are like, you're make you're gonna have to pay for it eventually. You're gonna have to like pay for these mistakes eventually. Whenever someone tells me like I got this idea, I filled filed an LLC. I'm like, dude, what the fuck are you doing? Just use your social security number to collect this money. You can figure that stuff out later. But the brand stuff and like the making the product, that stuff you can't figure out later. You got to nail that. Well, what's interesting though is, and I'm sure there's a lot of other people in this situation. One, there's a lot of paralysis by analysis. So like people think they have to have all these things lined up before they get started. No, I was never one of those people. But also you know, six, seven years in when I realized how quote unquote messy the things that I've built up until that point were, I felt really ashamed. I was like, oh, I'm a, I'm a horrible business person. Like, I was so focused on brand. You have these people with finance backgrounds and marketing backgrounds who, who are building these really clean, operationally efficient businesses. And I'm over here just focused on brand. And I thought I was focused on the wrong thing for the longest period of Not time. A chance. And then I realized I was focused on the right thing because you can't, you can't buy brand. You have to build brand. Exactly. And it's tough. And there's way more people that can go out and figure out all those other mistakes that you made versus the people who can build the brand. That's significantly more rare and harder to find. You know what I mean? Yeah. So, yeah, like I, I make jokes with people. Like, you know how people like collect domain names? Right. I'm like, that's loser behavior. Don't do that. In fact, go and get a sale or collect some type of money for your for your product before you even have a domain name. Just use like mynewproduct.squarespace.com or whatever. You know what I mean? Like get a free URL, don't buy anything and get momentum and then figure out all that other stuff. But like until you get a couple sales or you have a customer or someone likes your idea or product or whatever, none of that stuff's important. Um, so I'm in the same boat. I agree. So when you started your blog initially, like what was your goal? Was it the goal to turn it into a business or were you just trying to have some sort of creative outlet. Yeah, so I used to make money by like selling stuff on eBay, like sports equipment, because it was like in high school, like the seniors would leave and I would get their like track and field spikes and I would like sell it on eBay and I made money doing that. And then eventually I went to college and I met a guy named Mike Wolf who was on this TV show called American Pickers and he like let me work uh, for him for a little while and I learned a little bit more about entrepreneurship. From there I started... Were you on the show? Um like occasionally in the background, like, you know how Mike has like the um, stores in Iowa and Nashville. Yeah. I basically was a like $10 an hour employee at the Nashville one. Uh, so like if they needed an extra to walk around, maybe you'll see me, but I wasn't like a character or anything. Um, but then I, from there I started a hot dog stand and I had a bunch of them. It was called Southern Sam's wieners as big as a baby's arm. And that was, <laughs> and that was my thing. And then after that, I started like an online store where I was selling like a collectible whiskey. And it was the URL was like something.wordpress.com. And then I realized the internet's awesome. It's way better than like selling hot dogs. And so I saw this company. You'll actually get a kick out of this. I read Let's Run every day. Yeah. There was a guy named Chris Lukasik, who at the time was the sixth fastest miler in America. He read Run 347. And he said, I'm quitting running to join this company called Air Bed and Breakfast. And this was in 2010, I think, when they just started. And I think he was the sixth hire. And I was like, what the hell is this Air Bed and Breakfast thing? And I went to the website and I saw it and I go, that's it. I got to do that. So I started blogging for fun. It was just like sampar.tumblr and I would blog like crazy. And then eventually I was like, I'm going to go work at that company. So I'm going to start blogging stuff that's going to get me recognized by the CEO of Airbnb. Um, and so I did. So I started blogging that and I found all these cool hacks and I would write blogs on like how they could improve. And I emailed it to him and he was like, oh, okay, this is cool. Like your idea is, he didn't say this, but he's like, your idea is like 
you know, we, we already thought about all that, but that's cool that you are doing this. Come and interview with me and maybe you can work here. So I did flew out there from Nashville, got a job interview there. He goes, he was like, yeah, great. Come and work for us. So I go back to Nashville, sell all my stuff, leave school, move back out there. The day before I'm supposed to start, they were like, man, you lied to us. I was like, what? He goes, you said you didn't have a criminal record and you do. And when I was in college, I had like some addiction issues and I went to jail for a few days for DUI and then fighting and things like that. And he was right. I totally lied about it. And he caught me. You know, you like when you go like one of those things where you click like, do you have a misdemeanor or whatever? I clicked no because I was like, they're a startup. They'll never check. They're not going to check. Uh, they did. And so I was out in San Francisco with like next to nothing. And I'm like, what am I going to do? So I started blogging again. I was blog like crazy. And one thing led to another. And I eventually started a conference like a like a TED Talk style conference and I got all my customers to come to that event through blogging and then it kind of came down to where I realized oh this email newsletter thing is actually more powerful because the bigger that my email list gets the more conference tickets I sell so that's when I realized like oh email is actually more important than blogging but blogging was like the beginning of, of everything. So I would blog a ton and I was able to get like millions of people to come to my blog. And I still like to blog, but it all started with just like on a Tumblr and then eventually a WordPress website of just blogging every single day for, you know, five articles a day some days. Um, very similar to YouTube, except YouTube, I guess I didn't know how to edit video, so but I knew how to write. So I've been blogging forever. When you were out in Nashville, you were, you were going to school on a, a track... Scholarship, correct? Yeah, I I was an exceptional high school 200 and 400 meter runner. I was very good. I went to a Division One school to run, and I didn't get that much better because I drank and partied. And back then, like it's only ten years ago, but like the nutrition and recovery stuff and all that type of stuff that we all know now, that was more niche. So like a guy in Nashville, I didn't know about that. You know, I didn't have an iPhone. I didn't like read about this stuff. I mean, even when I was going to school and I graduated 2013, it was like brand new to the space yeah like there was no like you just my like coach was like dude your oven's burning hot enough you can eat anything you want like i, I don't know we just ate pizza and ice cream all the time and like and i remember people saying that like the, the engine's burning just keep keep feeding the, yeah. the furnace yeah which is nonsense yeah. right like that's that's you could 100 out eat a bad diet you don't want to or, or you can out eat um running ultras you can out eat and almost anything I think. right um and so anyway yeah i was there and i wasn't healthy and i uh, didn't take it seriously um, uh, mentally or like physically. And so eventually I quit my junior year and I started, got, uh, that's when I got into business. Did you ever finish college? Yeah. So I left early, but my mother was like, it means a lot to me that you do this. So while I was out in San Francisco, I like completed a bunch of online stuff and I was really poor. I didn't have any money there. So I used to like ride a bike to like this Kaplan testing center and would have to take these tests. So technically I did finish. Yeah. This kind of reminds me of, you know, Noah Kagan was on the podcast talking about how he was one of the early employees at Facebook yeah. and ended up getting fired. He got fired. He probably lost out on a hundred million dollars because of that. And that's, that's my question for you is when you were, you know, first hired by Airbnb, were you offered a comp package with equity? I was offered like $25 an hour. I was like a grunt. Um, I think I did the math. No, I think I could have made like maybe $5 million over the course of that amount of time. I think a, I probably would have gotten fired or quit before that. And B, I ended up starting a business and I I made a lot more than that. So it worked out all right. But now my wife works at Airbnb. And so I used to joke whenever we go, I would go to her office and see her friends or whatever. I'm like, oh, my alma mater, my old stomping grounds. That's and funny. It's 
like I never actually uh, started. So it didn't work out. When you were younger, because um, obviously it seems like you like going from zero to one, you like starting a lot of things. Yeah, that's my thing. When you were younger, like say, you know, middle school, high school, were you starting a lot of things as well? Yeah, like selling CDs. Like remember when you could burn a CD? Right, yeah. I, I had a computer that could do that. So like selling CDs. Yeah, I was always doing that. My my father owns, he, he owned a fruit stand, which became like a produce brokerage company, which sounds significantly more sophisticated than it kind of is. But so my parents were small business owners and growing up in the Midwest, it was like, you. this is just what you do. You, you start small businesses. So I thought when I grew up, I was going to own like a restaurant or a bar. And then I like learned about the internet and I was like, oh, that's, a, this is the way to go. But yeah. The, I, was, I was the same way growing up. Like I would start a lot of different things. And a lot of it was uh, around construction. Like I, I grew up in this small, you grow up? this small town right outside of Hershey, Pennsylvania. And for me, like starting something was, you know, my dad's side of the family were dairy farmers and my mom's side of the family, my grandfather on that side he was like a woodworker. So I would spend a lot of time with him and then my other like selling his own stuff. Yeah. He'd make like birdhouses and, and he didn't call himself an entrepreneur. No, he's just like, this is just what you do. You just pick up a skill and you sell it to friends and whoever. Right. Like there, there wasn't like this, this title or this big thing behind it. So I watched them like kind of tinkering growing up and you know, we grew up in this, this subdivision, this new neighborhood that was just being built when I was younger. I think our, our house was like maybe house number 10. And now there's 400 houses in this neighborhood. But why that's relevant or relevant is because as these houses were being built, there were massive just dumpsters everywhere with scrap wood. So I would take my, my wagon around growing up and I'd jump in these dumpsters and I'd pull out all the scrap wood. I'd go back to our house and I'd build stuff. I'd build like forts in our backyard. I built a boat once that... Did it sunk? Work? No, it yeah, sunk. That's what I thought. <laughs> <laughs> I, built, I built this boat, and my mom was so like encouraging. She put it on the back of this trailer. She drove us to like this local. Dude, my parents were the same way. Stream. We put it in, and like it, it went down the stream maybe a hundred feet, and then just right to the bottom. We left it there. It had a steering wheel. It didn't like steer anything. It was just this this circular piece there. that was attached by a screw. But like I was tinkering early on, and I always loved taking nothing and turning it into something that's the art yes and I, I think that's why i love zero to one and I'm, I'm curious if you're the same way and maybe this is why you sold the hustle is because going from one to two is a lot different from going zero to one yeah it is different so the reason i sold the hustle is i have you ever read the book called how to get rich by felix dennis i have not it's horribly titled but basically, Felix Dennis, he's dead now, but he's kind of like a combination of Richard Branson and Mick Jagger. So he's like this like eccentric billionaire who started uh, a bunch of stuff in England that you probably would never have heard of. But one of them went public at a multi-billion dollar valuation. It was like a tech company, but it was in the 80s. So it wasn't what we think of tech companies. But it, the most popular thing that you would know is he started Maxim Magazine. Oh, okay. And he had a, a, a magazine empire before the internet, which is like one of the most profitable things you could have done. He has this book called How to Get Rich. And he died of cancer in his 70s. And he basically said, like, if I could do it all over again, I would have wanted to sell out by the time I was 35 and made as much money as possible and then had a bunch of free time to, like, actually spend what I was doing versus becoming addicted to this and becoming, like, a punch-drunk boxer who never, like, gives up and becomes, you know, can't speak after a certain age. And I was like, oh, that sounds... Yeah, that sounds cool. Let's do that. And so when I started the hustle, I was like, I think I can grow this to this point at which I could sell it 
And my goal was to make $20 million after taxes by the age of 30. Because I, I was like, in my head, that means I could spend like um, six or $700,000 a year, which is like pretty good. Uh, you know, that's like kind of luxury. And, uh, or it is luxury. And for the rest of my life, and I could like be fine. And so when I sold the company, that was my goal was to get there. And then what I learned after selling it was like, A, that's, that is awesome. Like, I'm, I'm not going to lie about that. That is awesome to be there. But B, um, selling is cool. But like, once you have something that's working, it's also cool to like, try to do it for 20 years and just compound. I didn't understand compound, uh, like co compounding growth, like 30% year in annual growth doesn't sound like a lot. But do that for 20 years. And it gets really big, really it's fast. It's huge. And that's really hard to understand. And I didn't understand that until somewhat recently. So now my my everything I'm going to start now, I want to go a lot bigger, partially because I think there's like an ego thing, but also partially because I think it's fun to like see the compounding. But I sold because like when I sold the George Floyd rights were happening, COVID was happening, I had gotten sick. And I was like, the world's going to end. And now's my time to get that number and I should just get out and have some financial security because I felt I was basically poor. I didn't pay myself a lot of money. So that's one of the reasons why I sold. I thought it was a very interesting way that HubSpot approached you because I've always envisioned like this merger acquisition transaction for a company, larger company, is like this very formal process. But from my understanding, HubSpot literally just sent you an email, like a cold email, trying to acquire your, your company. Yeah. So basically for the listener, HubSpot, it's like a $25 billion publicly traded software company. So they're like, I think now they have 7,000 employees. So there's like great, big, awesome company. And we originally, we thought about selling. I hired a banker and we did this like tour where somehow this banker like lined up like 10 companies that they thought wanted to buy us. None of them were interested. What year was this? 19, 2019. Okay. And basically when you're running a company, like 90% of the time you're like, this is shit. This sucks. I want to get out and I felt stressed all the time. So I was like, anytime I could get someone interested, I was like, all right, I'm interested. No one was interested. Uh, and then, so I said, screw it. I'm not going to go out and look for anything. So one day when I was living in, I was out in New York at the time, they sent me an email and it's James Gilbert at HubSpot.com or whatever it was. And he says, Hey, we're interested in partnership. Do you want to talk? And I replied, I looked him up on LinkedIn and he said, um, What's the term for merger and acquisitions in a company? It's a corporate, uh, what's it called? It's like a development, corp, corp dev. Okay. That's like the, usually that's like the, the term. And I saw he was on that team on LinkedIn and I go, Hey James, nice to talk to you. Um, I don't want to waste time on any of this. Just, I don't know what partnership means. Just tell me, are you wanting to buy us or not? And he replied back right away. He goes, yeah, we're interested. I go sick. Here's a Google doc. And here's all of the reasons why you shouldn't buy us. If, None of those are deal breakers. Then I'll get on the phone with you. And I made this like three page Google doc. And I said, if you do diligence, do when you do due diligence, here's what you're going to find. And it was nothing major. It was like, our churn is this, our revenue is this, our projections are this. Um, it was nothing major. Like I had never been sued or anything. So I didn't put anything like that. But it was like, um, if Google changes, we will be hurt. If, 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 if I don't even remember what it was, but it was like, here's all like the risk that we have. So for like B BPN, it would be like, um, maybe last year we had to do a recall or something like that for this small thing. We fixed it. But if that happens again on a bigger scale, we could be really screwed, whatever it is. So I listed out all those things and he goes, hey, yeah, none of these, none of these things are deal breakers at all. Let's talk. And I go, all right, great. 
like get on the phone with them. And I didn't hire a banker or anything because I like HubSpot. And I made the huge mistake of them saying, what do you think this is worth? And I told them. Huge mistake. Don't say the first number. Did, they, it, did they bite right when you said that? Yeah. Yeah. They go, oh, cool. Okay. And I was like, shit. <laughs> shit. And that was where hiring a banker would have been good. But uh, I made a mistake. And then um, they're like, look, we're interested. And I go, let me put together a preliminary data room. So a data room for the people listening, it's like a business in a box. It's like as much information about the company, like looking underneath the hood. But it's really hard to do. So I put a preliminary one together and they're like, yeah, look, we're interested. Let's sign an LOI, a letter of intent. And when you sign an LOI, that's like, I don't know how many days they usually have, 15 days, 30 days to like really dive deep on the business. And then they, and then you get like a term sheet after that, which is like, all right, here's all the details for the deal. We have 90 days to close this deal and to look through everything. And so we got to the term sheet phase and I was like, sick, this is awesome. And the thing that I didn't realize was because HubSpot's publicly traded, they have a board of directors. And so James had a boss who had a boss who had a boss who reported to the CEO, which meant that this was going all the way up and then the CEO tells the board of directors, they go, yay or nay, we're interested. And when I thought when I'm selling a company to these guys, I was like, they're going to pull out any minute. They're, this is just, or they're trying to like steal from me or they're trying to just like get information and they're just going to copy me. And I told them that eventually. And I was like, what do you guys do? And, and they're like, look, this deal, let's say we're buying it for 30 or 10 millions of dollars, tens of millions of dollars, whatever we're paying for it. This means like nothing for us. We make, you know, a billion dollars a year. Our reputation is worth more than screwing you out of this. So if we get to the, if we bring this to our board of directors, think about it, dude. Like I am going to look stupid in front of my boss now, and he's going to look stupid in front of their boss, and she's going to look stupid in front of their boss. If we say we're going to do this, we're going to do this. And I didn't believe that the whole time. And then I got into the company and I like learned how these big companies work. But throughout that 90 day process, it was just me and uh, my uh, like head of HR, Edie, like getting all these these people all the information, which is terribly hard. A lot of people don't realize how hard that is. I mean, I don't know if you, you I know you, you you've maybe have gone through a process or not. I don't know. But like, it's so much information that you have to give. And the thing about selling a company for 30 or $40 million, it's basically the same in a lot of regards to selling a company for 3 or $4 billion because that number isn't small enough that they can say, screw it, let's just wing it. It's big enough that it matters. You know, if this was like a $5 million deal, they'd be like, well, you know, that's not that much money. 30 or $40 million, that's enough money where it's like, no, we got to nail this. But I don't have the resources of a billion dollar company. It was just me getting all this information. And it was like the most painful thing, the most painful three, three months, 90 days I've ever experienced. It was really challenging. And is, then, is that how long it took to close? 90 days? 90 days, yeah. From the first email till no. funded? They emailed me in October and we closed in February. So between October, so whatever 90 days from February 1st is, what's that? December, December, January. Oh, sorry, uh, November. So they email. So uh, they emailed me in October. Between October and November was the letter of intent, and then at the beginning of that next month, that's when we got our term sheet, and then that's when the work started. So 30 days from November, or sorry, 90 90 days from November. What was your role in the business? What was your title? Were you CEO at this point during this whole so, transaction? <laughs> I had just hired... Well, so I was like talking to this guy. Uh, have you heard of Motley Fool? I have not. It's like a huge, like $500 million a year, like media business. I had just hired one of their executives to be the CEO, but he wasn't going to start until like December. And I couldn't tell him about this deal because there's a lot of secrecy around acquisitions. 
and in big part because HubSpot's publicly traded. So like when I started talking with them, they're like, hey, don't go and buy HubSpot stock. Don't tell anyone that you're doing this. And if they go and buy HubSpot stock, that's illegal. They'll get investigated by the SEC. I didn't think about that. Yeah, it's like a big deal. And I had hired the CEO who wasn't supposed to start, but I sent him an offer and he agreed. And then like two months into talking to HubSpot, I was like, man, I can't, I got to take this deal. I'm sorry. Um, and so technically I was CEO, but I had just hired a CEO who hadn't even started yet. Was was stepping down from the CEO role hard for you? Yeah, not, it's not hard anymore. So I hired a CEO like pretty quickly with my new company. But then, yeah, it was hard. It was hard because like you see like a Mark Zuckerberg or like an Evan Spiegel and like these like young guys who like do it from beginning to end. But those are rare. Those are super rare. And they also have like COOs who I bet are like, Close to being a CEO, badass but, operators. Yeah, they're like they're like Sheryl Sandberg at Facebook. You know what I mean? Like, she's a billionaire for that reason. Um, and so yeah, it was really hard. I thought like everyone's gonna quit. Like everyone's gonna think that I'm a pussy. Uh, like this is soft. This is and turns out that's all wrong. Um, I mean, I went through those those same things when I sat down from the CEO role. What did you say to yourself? Uh, I mean, it was tough. Like, I thought I was having a uh, a midlife crisis. And I remember I posted a, uh, a book that I was reading from strength to strength. I think I DM you DM'd me and you said, uh, are you having a midlife crisis? I knew you were going through the process of hiring a CEO and I don't know. I didn't know you. Yeah. Uh, I just was a fan, but I, yeah. And like, it was tough for me because what I realized is I had these two massive life transitions happen back to back. One, my daughter was born and then, and which shook up my world completely. And then two, I sat down from the CEO role and moved into just like a founder role, creative director role or creative chief creative officer role initially. And those two transitions in life just flipped my, my world upside down. And I was thinking to myself, like, well, what, what is my purpose now? Like, what, what is my mission? If, if Kat is now the CEO, what is my true role in the business? And am, am I providing real impact. Was this the right decision? Was this the wrong decision? So it took me months to kind of fall into my place and, and find my routine and my rhythm. But it's one of those things that, like, you know, when you do something for so long, it just becomes part of you. Like I identified with being the founder and CEO. Yeah. And it feels good to like, when you walk in some place to say those words, founder and CEO. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, and I, I self identified with that for so long when I didn't have that anymore, I didn't know what my identity was. And what's also interesting is, you know, when me and my wife were getting uh, married a few years ago, we went through like premarital counseling mm -hmm. and a lot of our issues that we were experiencing revolved around me just wanting and needing to work all the time. And that's where a lot of our issues were, were, were stemmed from. And I remember this one day we were in counseling and I'm explaining like why I need to work all the time, all the things that are going on. And the therapist goes, Nick, who are you without BPN? And I was like, motherfucker, how dare you? That, that therapist is like, got him. I got like, him. I was like, you're fired. <laughs> but like, you know, you, you identify with this title and this role for so long. It was for me, it was a decade that when you give that up and you hand that off to someone else, 
like you kind of feel lost for a period of time. Were you also afraid? Like when, when I did it, I was like afraid. I was like, someone's going to ruin this and I have all my net worth in there and like it's going to be crushed. Like were you afraid of, for that reason too? I, I personally wasn't just because I trusted Kat so much. And I, like, I, like I was telling you, when that year started, I went into that year not expecting to ever step down from the CEO role. But it was like right person, right place, right time, where it was a very natural, organic transition in, in conversation. It was literally just like, hey, Kat, like, I want to just focus on creating content and building the brand. And I want to get out of the day-to-day operational efficiencies and the nuts and bolts. Do you want to take this role? She said, yeah. So like, it was this very natural kind of just progression. And can I guess? I want to guess two or three things. Yeah. One... Did you feel like, like, did you feel like who would ever want to do this or like to do this? Like, did you have doubt on that? And two, did you think, oh, my team's going to be so let down and you announced to them and they were like, oh, thank God. Like, this is, that's a smart move. We like this more. Well, yeah. First off, when we announced the cat was taking the CEO role and I was stepping down, the whole team was like, yeah, we saw this coming. We expected this. But were they pumped? Oh, they were so pumped. Yeah, and I thought people were going to be like, oh, we're bummed. And, <laughs> no. and, and I was like, and they were like, oh, thank God. You know what I mean? Like, we preferred this. Well, and what was the other question again? Um, like, I remember, I remember like having self-doubt where I'm like, who's going to want to run this little, you know, $20 million a year business? Like, this is nothing. Like, what do you, you came from all these impressive things. I'm a no one. Why would you ever want to do this? And there's a lot of people who love that. Yeah, so I remember when, when we officially announced and made it live, you know, there's all this like kind of BS you, you do in the background as a CEO that you don't want anyone else to have to do because it's just like admin BS. And I was still doing a lot of that because in my head, I'm like, I feel bad handing this off to someone else because right. it's just admin BS. And then when Kat saw that I was still doing it, she said, what are you doing? This is my responsibility now. I'm like, yeah, but you, trust me, you don't want to do this. It, yeah, that's that- like, Yes, I do. That's exactly my point, which is you think like no one's going to want to do this. And it turns out there's people who do love doing that. And they'll probably think the same way about like you starting something and they're like, I can never do this. Who's like crazy enough? And I don't want the criticism of all this stuff or with you, all your videos, particularly like you're shirtless and half naked and all of you're like, who the fuck wants to put all that shit on the internet? And you're like, oh, right. I love this stuff. This is awesome. Do you, do you find that? Because like, in, in the space that you're in, especially with the new business, Hampton, like you're surrounded by a lot of founders, a lot of entrepreneurs. I'm assuming a lot of creatives or, or artists like yourself. Do you find there's a lot of people who are, who are creative brand builders, who are artists, who start something and then naturally that evolves and then becoming this businessman that they don't want to be and they find themselves in this space, in this spot where they're unhappy because they're working on things that they yes. don't want to be working on? So Hampton is like a, it's like a peer group. So basically like if you're a founder of a certain size, you apply, we interview and you're put into like groups of eight people who have similar sized businesses to you and you meet once a month and it's like group therapy, whatever. It's awesome. But um, it's like a common business model, YPO, whatever. And I've learned a lot through that. But also I said, I, the hustle, we owned conferences. That was the first thing. And what I used to do is I would tell these people. So we had the founders of WeWork, Casper, Away Travel, Grammarly, um, I mean, Bonobos, uh, like any startup that was popular between 2012 and like 2016 probably spoke. We had hundreds, probably 200 people speak. And I got to meet all of them. And I would do this lie 
Or I would tell them, let's say they had to speak at three. I'd be like, oh, mic checks at 10 a.m. So you got to be in the green room then. There's no mic checks at a conference. The mic works. Like you don't, you don't do anything. You just put the lapel mic on your good. But I would do that because I would want to, it was a room like this. I would want to sit in the room with them and just shoot the shit. And I would be like, one time it was like the founder of WeWork, Casey Neistat, the founder of Away Travel, the founder of ClassPass, and like the founder of like Casper Mattresses or something, all just sitting in a room. And I just like started talking to some, one of them. And then I just shut up because I knew I got the conversation going and people just started complaining about stuff. They would be like, Man, Mike, this is like one company that was about to go public. They're like, I'm, a, I'm afraid of, I've had this one person working for me for three years and I'm afraid to fire them because I just, I don't want the confrontation. This other person that had just been written about in the New York Times for their amazing company was like, I'm so stressed out, man. I don't know if we're going to make it. I, and I'm like, what? Doc, I just read about you. You're supposed to be the best. And so anyway, it was like all these people complaining about shit. And I remember like Sam Yegan, this guy who started OkCupid, who is now the CEO of Match.com. So like a multi-billion dollar company. They own Tinder, all this other stuff. He was like pacing back and forth, like so nervous to go on stage. And I'm like, dude, like you have more employees at this company than I think there's like 3,000 people in this stage right now or in the audience. You have like more people who work for you just in New York. What are you nervous about? And doing all this stuff, I remember thinking, A, these people have insecurities and freak out just like I do. And they have the same self-doubt regardless of how big they are. B, um, most of them, not all of them, most of them are, I'm in the ballpark of intelligence. I'm kind of smart. I'm not that smart. I'm in that ballpark. There's some people like the founder of Grammarly, this guy named Max. He's smarter than me. He's got, his, he's got more horsepower. That makes sense. Yeah, there's nothing I'm going to do to keep up with that guy. But there's a whole bunch of other people that are worth hundreds of millions and billions of dollars. Like I met the guy from WeWork. Uh, his name is not the main guy, Adam, the other one. Um, I forget his name. Uh, but like I met him and I'm like, oh man, like we're, we're close. You might be smarter. You might not, but you're a hundred times wealthier than I am. But we're, you're not a hundred times smarter than me. So I realized that. And then like the final thing I, I, I think I learned was like a lot of the people who are in the position that they are in, they didn't exactly want to be in that, but they're too nervous to like step away or like hire someone to do it. And once I realized all of those things, it felt like before I had bad eyesight and now I have eyeglasses. Like I could see more clearly. I'm like, oh man, dude, I just learned from like hundreds of people and I saw these patterns. So I know that A, it's cool to hire a CEO. That is the way to go. B, just because you like raising money is a painful experience, not while you're raising it, but after you have the money, you now have massive expectations. So that's like crazy. So that was a big learning, which is why I prefer not raising money. Um, a lot of startup founders, even if they've raised hundreds of millions of dollars, they're still pretty poor. And if their company doesn't work out after four or five years, all they've made is their $150,000 salary over, and they've dedicated eight years to doing their thing. Um, what else was interesting? Um, but my point being, we're talking about hiring a CEO, like these same like feelings of like inadequacy and all this stuff. It helped me realize that all the people I admire also held had that, and so that made it significantly easier to like make some of these changes in my life. Do you find there's a? Because I found this there's this this misconception uh, and false expectation that people think that the founders of companies are wealthy, wealthy, wealthy people. When in reality, like you're working nonstop for sometimes a, a pretty conservative salary. Is that the norm? Yeah, yeah. I think, yeah, I think that's the norm. Um, because if you do the math, like m most of them require capital, like particularly what you're in e-commerce, like 
I don't know your economics, but like in order to supply your Black Friday demand, you have to pay for that. When do you have to pay for that? Like in six months in advance? Uh, we have like net 30, net 45 terms of a lot of manufacturers, but we're front loading inventory in very early on in preparation for a big sale like that. And so I bet you, I don't know for sure, but I bet you there's been a lot of times where your revenue was like $10 million, but you had 50,000 in the bank or something like that. Like, has that ever happened? I mean, now that we have like a really robust financial team uh, and CFO in place, like they manage cash flow very appropriately. When it was me managing cash flow years ago, yeah, I mean, we were an eight figure business and we'd have, you know, hundred, $200,000 in the bank. And I was about to pull my hair out, about to lose my mind. Yeah. And so when you think about like, oh, Nick Bear's got a business that did 10 million in revenue, but he only has a hundred thousand in his business account. You're probably only paying yourself 50 or 80 grand a year or less. Um, and so like on paper, you're, you are maybe worth 10 or $20 million, but like, I don't have 10 or $20 million. And so that's like pretty common. I have a, a friend that raised $50 million for his startup. It didn't work out. It went out of business after five years. He got acquired, but it's like an aqua hire. And the only money that he made was 125000 a year in salary. And that's super common. And there's other people, though, who are bootstrap a business and they can start taking out a lot of money. But it takes like six, seven, eight years, 10 years, whatever it takes before you're actually... Like if you owned 100% of this business, you're, you're at the stage now where you could probably take a meaningful dividend or something, right? I could um, if I wanted to, but I don't. Yeah, if you wanted to. Yeah. And how many years did that take of running the business? I'm a, we're almost 11 years in. So at what year do you think you could have paid yourself $1 million and you have felt like the business still has enough cash? Uh, maybe a year ago. That's 10 years in. <laughs> yeah. That's 10 years in. And so a lot of people, and, and, and the business was is, is or was when at that point could have been worth tens of millions, maybe even north of $100 million. And it's like, that's the first year. Let's If we assume that a million dollars is like, uh, the threshold of a lot of money. That's the first year that I'm able to like actually see that cash. So like it takes a long time. Not always. Like digital products are better. So like you know if you're selling courses or software, like it can be a lot better. But typically businesses take a long time. Like if you talk to like a restaurant owner, I bet you they don't. Even if it's a booming restaurant, they don't get like significant cash flow for like eight or ten years. Still, I mean, it takes a long time to actually turn that asset value into some type of cash. Right. What's your opinion? Because I have a lot of people that reach out to me who want to start businesses and they don't know if they should bootstrap or raise capital that's, initially. That's a bad question. I think that's a bad question. I think when they say that, I'm like, that's like saying like, should you run marathons or lift weights? Two, like, two completely different things. Yeah. It's, well, it's just like, well, what do you want? Like, you know, like, so the thing about raising money is it's rocket fuel. And rocket fuel doesn't go with cars, regardless of how fast your car is or how cool it is. And so you have to ask yourself, like, do I want to build something that's a potential rocket? Meaning it could grow at like a really good startup. Well, I think what's, what's the equation? It's like it'll triple, triple, double, double. So the annual growth will triple, 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 and then double, double. That's like what you want it to be in order to be a company that could eventually go public in like eight years or whatever the, that have you ever heard that phrase? Like, no, I haven't. So like that, what that means is like, let's say you're in year one, you do a 500,000. That means in year two, you need to get to 1.5. And then from 1.5, what's triple that? That's 4.5. 4.5. And then you want to, I think, triple it one more time. 
and then double and then double. And then that gets you to like 50 million, I think, in like eight years or six years or something like that, whatever the math is. But it's like, it's usually something like that. You have to ask yourself, do, is, this the, is this the life I want to sign up for? And if you raise money, raising seed money is a little bit different. So if you raise like 100,000 to maybe a million from a whole bunch of friends and family, if you have a bunch of rich friends, you can get that. That's a little bit different than raising venture capital, which means you now have an institution and they need you to have an exit in seven years and they're going to give you $5 million. And then in three more years, they want to give you $20 million. And for those people, you're one of, a hundred bets that they've made and they need you to either go out of business or sell so they can make 10 to 50 times their money in seven years. And as a founder, you have to ask yourself like, which mission do I want to sign up for? Um, and so I think it's like, should I raise or should I not raise? It's like, well, I don't know. Like there's arguments for both are important. Uber wouldn't exist if they didn't raise money. Mm -hmm. Facebook, probably not. But like Ben and Jerry's will exist without raising money. So like that's pretty sick too. Like to own that or yeah. so it's like which one which which mission do you want to sign up for? I also think that when they are just starting out of asking which should you raise money or not money? Should you raise money or not? I think that's a bad question because I think it's should, why don't you just build build an initial product or some version of a product to prove that you have something that people even want in the first place. And then figure out if you want to raise money or not. I want to go back to you know when you're in that green room with all these founders, Casey Neistat was there. He's a wild man. He's wilder. He's wilder in real life than he is on camera. In what way? He's just bouncy. He was just full of energy. When I when he spoke, he spoke at like ten in the morning. He had already ran ten miles, and he was just like jumping around. And like there was like a piece of duct tape. There was like a we were like backstage. Just imagine a theater. So there's like stuff all over the place. Like a, there was a roll of duct tape, and he like grabs it and he starts like pulling the duct tape out and like he rips off a piece and he smacks it on his shirt. And if you go and watch his talk, he's got a piece of duct tape on here. And I'm like, dude, can you please pay attention? Make eye contact with me, please. Like, look me in the eye. I need to tell you what to do, how this thing works. He's just jumping around. He's just like, and then afterwards, these like three volunteers that were working with me were fanboys of him. And he goes, hey, I'm about to go fly back on this private jet. Do you guys want to go with me? And they go, yeah, let's go. And they just bail. They took off their, their like t-shirt that I gave them. They just like got the plane with them. And I was like, Sick. Thanks, guys. Dude, that's just that's spontaneous that I need in my life. Dude, he is like that. Gosh. He's, he's like that. But anyway, sorry, you were asking about that room. Yeah, so that room, if IQ wasn't the the clear separator of these people who are massively successful and have built large organizations, what is the competitive advantage that these people possess? So I actually don't want to I used to downplay this, but it's true, which is luck. Luck's real. Um, like there's luck with timing it could be as big as you're born in this time and you're healthy but like luck's real so like some of them launch businesses like there's this guy alex who started this company called the athletic you know the athletic no it's like a subscription sports website that sold for like 700 million dollars to new york times oh wow he created a subscription like news website when people were finally willing to pay for online news um or there was like the founder of ThreadUp, which is like a, a, a website where you can sell used clothing. And he launched it at the right time when, when eBay was losing steam and uh, women wanted to sell used clothing online. So like there's a little bit of luck that way, regardless if he like researched it or not. But besides that, um, I would say like just courage. So they just realized that 
they're they, they're scared regardless, but they do it anyway. So I think that that's like I used to think that they're just like braver or smarter. When it's like, no, you're still freaking out. You just do it anyway. Was there anything other other significant things? I mean, that's what I found. Like the reason I started BPN is one, I had this this passion for this thing, this space, but I was also very ignorant to the risks that I was taking. So like you can call it courage, but also it's just an, an ignorance. Ignorance is a thing. And I was about to say that, which is like, have you ever heard, like, I, I remember hearing this old pitch. Uh, they interviewed, um, the, there's a firm in Seattle called Madonna, I think. And Jeff, they were the first invas- uh, investors of Amazon. And they said during his pitch, Bezos goes, you know, if this goes well, I think we can make $100 million a year. And that was like his pitch. And I've noticed that that's actually a common theme. I remember talking like to the Casper guys and to all these other companies. And they're like, we thought it could be like a thing. We didn't know if it was going to be like this big, but we just like didn't really care. We're like, let's just get to this next step. You know, there's this phrase that we use called ABZ, which is like Z is like one day, maybe it can become like a $20 billion company that we're sold in all the stores and will change the way people sleep. But right now, let's just see if we can get to like, 10,000 in sales. And then the B of that is, let's just see, maybe after that, we'll figure out if we can get to $500,000 in sales. But anything between B and Z, we'll figure it out as we get there. And there's typically that attitude I've noticed of it's like, I don't know, let's just get into this and we'll see what happens and we'll figure out as we go. That's like a pretty common attitude versus like writing a business plan. You know what I mean? Yeah. I was listening to a a podcast uh, actually this, this past weekend when I was on a run. You listen to podcasts when you run? I do. Oh. I, I, I recently started doing it, and it's it's usually if I'm prepping for a podcast. So this was a podcast you were on. It was the one I was explaining to you. It was that live podcast with Noah Neville. Uh, and one thing that was mentioned in that live podcast was this concept of, of creative, free, creative freedom is greater than optimized growth. And... Uh, I was reading a book a few months ago and I can't remember what book it was off the top, top of my head. It might've been traction. Actually, I think it was traction is when we were implementing EOS into our business, Yeah, which is awesome. And I was reading traction. And it talked about how there were these guys who started this business and they got it to $10 million and they capped it at $10 million. And all these people came in and said, you can take this business to a hundred million dollars. And the founder said, yeah, but I don't want to because I enjoy where I'm at right now. I think a lot of people think that they have to like start this thing and take it to the moon, but there's, there's a certain inflection point where you sacrifice creative freedom for optimized growth. Can you kind of just like riff on that for a little bit? And at what point did you feel like you were losing creative freedom for optimized growth with the hustle? My creative freedom, it, I screwed it up. When I started my company, how old were you when you started yours? 22. I was 24, 25. And like, I don't know about you, but like the person who you are at 24, it's not like a fully developed, you don't have your full, you're still like learning which, what you're, what you stand for and what you don't stand for. hundred percent. Um, and you're trying on new hats and whatever. The thing I screwed up with my company was like, I started out one way of like, I said, I want to, we want to create 10,000 jobs. That was my goal. And I was like, we'll just hire tons of people. And then I was like, there's like five other things that I wanted us to do. And then I realized a year in, oh, I don't want to do that at all. But I had already hired some people who think that that's what I want to do. And I didn't have the balls or the courage to like put my foot down and be like, nope, this is what we stand for. Instead, it was like, I just want to appeal to the most amount of people. 
Mm-hmm. And that's when I lost some of the juice. And that's when I screwed up of wanting to appeal to everyone and like not having the courage to like say, this is what I am. And that's one of the reasons why Dave Portnoy at Barstool, who I don't even like that much, but I respect that, like he said, this is what we are. This is what we stand for. And I'll look like a fool defending this. And that's kind of like where I screwed up a little bit of when we got bigger, I got more PC and I got like more... I told you a story about how like I wanted to get rid of our cleaners because I wanted everyone to clean for themselves to make them feel bought in. And they like had a mutiny and I gave in. A, a strong leader doesn't give in and said, nope, this is what we stand for. And if you don't like it, get out. And then what that means is like the people who are really into it are into you even more. And I did a really bad job of doing that. And that's when sometimes we lost our ways a little bit. You know what I mean? Yeah. Where you don't like put your foot down. It's like, I don't know. You actually seem better than this that I than I am, but like I kind of sucked at having like hard conversations, and like I would, I just wasn't good at it. Partially because I was young, and partially because I didn't have the tool the tools on how to do that. I mean, you, but, hard hard conversations. I mean, those would keep me up at night. But you, same, like if you, I was telling you earlier, I was like, if when you get a Slack that says we need to talk, that's like the worst. Like I I don't go to bed. I'm like, fuck. What is he gonna say to me? He's definitely quitting. Like, and I would freak out, but you seem pretty good at that where you're like, this is what we are. This is what we stand for. We are doing this. You seem like you are, I'm pretty, I, I could, uh, earlier in my career, I was easily influenced. You don't seem easily influenced. Is that right? Uh, I had to learn through failure with that. It's like we started initially, I knew exactly who we were, what we stood for, what we were going to do, what we were going to build. And I would say like two years ago, I realized, okay, I think we've tapped out this, this, uh, this movement. We need to. What was the movement? It was just like grittier, uh, more in your face, intense, disruptive type all around. Go on more. Like if you don't, if you don't believe in this mission, mission and this message, like we're hardcore, not for you. like more hardcore, more intense athlete guys. Yep. I got to a point maybe like two years ago. I was like, okay, well, we need to be more approachable to appeal to a larger audience. I think you had an ad that I saw where it was like, was there like a bunch of weightlifters and they're like mutants? Yeah. uh, Yes. It was uh, the band Substance, um, Big Earthy Arms ad. Yeah. And that was like, that was kind of hardcore. Yeah. That was, that was badass. Like that was BPN. And we got off course a little bit because what I found is, you know, you hire more people and those people bring in perspectives and thoughts and opinions and they start injecting that. And if, if you don't keep a really tight lane, like a left and right limit on, on brand, on creative, on messaging, like it will go all over the place. And there was a point about two years ago where our messaging started going all over the place. Like who are we actually trying to message to? Are we trying to go too, too broad? And we, like recently we've ruled it back in of we are a hybrid athlete brand. We're going after the hybrid athlete. Go Did one you more. make up that, that thing? I didn't, I didn't make it up, but like the story behind the, the hybrid athlete is in 2018, I was, I was writing a training program just to share with my audience for, for free. And it's when I just started running. So up until that point, like historically, I was a strength bodybuilding athlete. And I just recently started running. I was training for a marathon. So I was adding mileage into my, my training programs. And I was sharing with the people who followed me what I, what and how I was training. So I wrote this program out. And right before I launched it, like literally probably an hour before I put it on the website, I was like, what do I call this thing? 
Well, it's a cross between running and lifting. I heard hybrid before. Let's just call it hybrid athlete oh, training. Oh, so you didn't make this uh, this trend. I, I wasn't sure if this was like a common thing that you discovered and you just made popular or this is like an invention. Because I hear people say hybrid athlete all the time now. I didn't create it. There, there was a, a gentleman years before me who wrote, wrote a book on it that I recently found out about. So I'm not going to take credit for So you created it, it in your, in your, you thought you did. I, I thought I did. But that's cool. I would argue that I, I gave it a lot of exposure. Oh, for sure. And definitely like pioneered it in these past Are you going to make Nick, what's it called? Nick Bear Training? What do you call it? Uh, just Nick Bear Fitness. Are you going to make that into its own big thing? Or are you just going to let that run in the background, you think? Of like training programs? Yeah. I think I'm going to let it run in the background. Like as I'm like evolving in my personal and professional career, uh, I don't want to just be known as like, the fitness guy. Yeah, I don't want to be known as just like just this guy who can run fast and lift heavy and like this hybrid athlete. What do you athlete. want to be known as then? Uh, I, I want to be evaluated and judged more on like my thoughts and opinions rather than my You're body. Like, Guys, I'm not just this hot guy. Yeah, I mean, it, it sounds I'm like- I'm not this hot, ripped, amazing looking person. It sounds, it sounds <laughs> shallow, but at the same time, like- you know, what I spent the last decade plus building, it's more than just what I eat and how I train. And um, you can only do so many races. You can only do so many competitions. And you can only talk about this stuff for so long. How big's the team uh, of doing that? Uh, like my personal team? Uh-huh. Oh, the, two, the two, fitness stuff. Uh, so my, my personal team is two people. It's, it's Jordan, who you met. Yeah. And then Ian. So, so you have a, th this, this quote side hustle is like a great, that's, that's a great business. It is, yeah. I mean, it's like I, I have BPN. We kind of talk about this. Like, I have BPN where I spend a lot of my time and energy. And then the fitness business, which is a separate LLC, Nick Bear Fitness LLC, that's where I have like all of my content creation and generation, my fitness training app, um, any BPN partnerships. BPN pay you to advertise on Nick Bear? No. Okay. So you just do it for free? Yep. Okay. Because there's, there's an incentive for me to like, grow the business like I am yeah. the founder and owner I just was wondering if there's some like interesting tax things where where you could like uh, I don't know pay your you, you could pay your, that LLC instead of you taking out a salary yeah I'm sure there is but you don't but care it goes back to like I don't want to complicate it I just want to keep building with my head down because it's what I love doing Um, but yeah that's like kind of where I'm at right now with like fitness is like my identity it is and always will be part of my life, but I do want to be more than that. Like, Mental I be, fitness. I want to be a role model. Yeah. Right? Like, that, that's my goal is, yeah, I'm working on my, a second book right now. What was what that going to be called? Do you know? Uh, it's going to be called Going More. What was the first one called? 25 hours a day. Okay. Yeah, I saw you doing all the promotion. It was weird seeing you without a hat on and with your hair combed. And uh, I was I, like, why is this guy got a fucking shirt on? And it has a collar? What the hell is this? Shirt like, on with no hat is, it's... It's uncomfortable. I think I saw you in Fox or something. I'm like, <laughs> what is that plaid stuff on his body? Is that a shirt? <laughs> it's, like, it's rare. <laughs> I thought it was weird. I was like, are those, why, did, why are his knees covered? I've never, I've never seen him. What are those things? Is that pants? I um, cowboy boots on too. That I know. I, I liked it. I, but you looked weird. You looked different. I'm not used to seeing you like that. Is there anyone else like dead or alive who you look to and you're like, I'm going to take, I'm going to learn. I'm going to take attributes from these bunch, these people and apply them to myself. Like no one off the top of my head, but I'll, I'll listen to a lot of books and a lot of podcasts and I'll take bits and pieces from everything. Like one book that I'm reading right now that I'm really enjoying, it's called The Courage to Be Disliked. Yeah, I just bought it. 
Oh, you did? Because it was about having hard conversations because I suck at negotiating. It's a great... Have you started it yet? No, I literally just got it last night. It's great. Because I told someone, I was like, dude, I suck at negotiating. I just say yes to everything because I'm so uncomfortable. And uh, they said that book. It's a great book. Um, I listen to it when I'm running. And it's essentially at the point I'm in, in the book right now, it's a conversation between this philosopher and this younger gentleman. And they identify that, you know, the world in itself is simple, but we make it complex. And all the issues that we experience are interpersonal relationship issues. Mm -hmm. I mean, this is like prime example of being a business owner or an entrepreneur. It's like all of the issues you experience, especially as you get larger and bigger are with employees, agencies, other people. Yeah. Once you get past like 30 employees, it's like you as a CEO or leader, it's not so much that you're focused on products. You're more so just like a therapist and a collector of people. Right. Like your whole job is just to collect people and put them in the right seats. And that's basically, and then delete people if they, if, if they don't fit anymore. At what point in, in the hustle did you start feeling this? How many employees? people probably. 15? Yeah. But now with like with Hampton, we, we're, we're, we're small. Our whole thesis is let's try to overpay. Like let's pay a lot of, in salary and things like that in create a place where someone would want to work there for five or 10 years versus like the average tenure at Facebook is like 18 months or something. It's like nothing. Um, and to um, hire less people if possible, but we'll still need to hire. I mean, I think that business can get to a hundred million in revenue with 50 people. Um, but once you have a little bit of money and like once I made money, I realized a few things. One, when I was running my first company, it was all my money in the business. And I was thinking, if this doesn't work, I'm broke. And so I was very defensive at times when I should have been offensive. So there was days where, or months where like Facebook ads were doing great for us. I should have just poured way more into that. But instead I was like, no, nope, we can't ever have less than a million dollars in the bank. Because it's your net worth. Yeah. And it, so, and I was too defensive and that screwed it up. I should have been way offensive. So one of my best friends now, his name's Austin Reef. He runs a company called Morning Brew, which was our competitors. We were basically, they were one year ahead of us or older than us. And we were tracking the same way. So like our revenue was something like 500,000 to 2.2 million to like 7 million to 12. And then we were going to do 20 the year we sold. And they were like doing the same thing where they went from like, they did almost those same numbers, but they went from like 20 to like 40 and then to 70. And now this year they'll do 85 million and they're probably worth 250, 300 million dollars. And now we're, I, while I was running the company, I hated him because he was my enemy. So I was like, now I must crush you. But now that we're no longer enemies, he's a great guy and I like him a lot. And he um, would tell we well, now we'll like, reveal exactly how we were running our businesses because it didn't matter. And he was like, yeah, you guys, I noticed you pulled back on your ad spend. We went harder because we got better CACs that month. And that's when we actually got ahead of you in terms of subscriber base. And I was like, I screwed up so much, like being too defensive. And so now that you have a little bit of money. Were they also bootstrapped or were they Yeah, funded? same thing. Okay. He just had a finance background. And so he was more emotionally like, this is not like to me, I was like, that's a million dollars for me. That's like my future house for him. It was like, this is just capital allocation. So to me, it's just a spreadsheet where it's like, well, if I put this much money into, I have, if I have a machine that turns $1 into $1 and 50 cents, like I'm just going to empty my money bucket into that machine. Cause why wouldn't I, he thought about it more logical where I was, I was significantly more emotional. Mm-hmm. Um, but now that I have like a little bit of something and it's like, well, if this business doesn't work out, 
I'm so rich. Like, I'm fine. I don't need this shit. Now that I have that attitude, it's kind of like when you like meet a girl. When you meet a girl and you don't try and you don't really want to meet her, she likes you more. Yeah. And you end up like having a better chance of actually being with her. Whereas when you're desperate, you, you know, she don't want you. You know what I mean? Um, and so I kind of treat my money that way in business where I'm like, I don't need you. If this works, great. If it doesn't work, whatever, I'm fine. And now I make way more because um, we were talking about like uh, employees and things like that. But basically like now I realize that, A, having more money to invest in stuff, I care less, which makes me more successful actually. But B, earlier on in that life cycle of Hampton, I realized I'm a collector of people and I could afford to hire people. Whereas with the hustle, I was like, I was afraid to like, because a good employee, even the best employee needs three months to ramp up and like produce anything. Most people take them probably six months. But now I'm like, no, no, no. I just have to collect the best people and I put them in the right position and then they'll figure it out. Um, and I realized that, um, you know, I have failed a bunch before I kind of realized that was the answer. Other than kind of your ability to take more risk and then be less emotional with business decisions, what else are you doing with Hampton that you learned from building the hustle? Like what's, what's making this business model more fun or easier? Hiring people that match culturally. So like before it was like anyone who was willing to take a chance on me and come and join my company, I was like, oh, please, thank you. Like I need you. Now it's like, this is what we stand for. You either in or you ain't. You know what I mean? I have a tattoo up, up here of my, of my pirate ship. And it's like, you either get on the pirate ship and these are the values that you're on board with or everyone else, we don't care. We're just going to sail right by you. And so with this company, we're doing a better job of seeding out people earlier on. Um, like I'm not a very political person, but like this wokeness of like um, entitlement that I experienced in San Francisco and I experienced a lot in New York, like um, people complaining about things that I think are not worthy of complaining. They're not like particularly real issues. And so like seeding out people who I think who are geared towards that and getting them out of the interviews, like getting getting them out of the system right away. Yeah. Um, that's important. So like cultural stuff. I, I always thought culture was like a weak word. I'm like, what the fuck is culture? Now I realize that's it's totally not true. Like that is really important. And so figuring out what values you stand for and not letting people who aren't on board with those values, not letting them on on board of your ship is really actually important. That's that's not some fluffy stuff. That's actually really important. Um, yeah, we, we implemented EOS in the business this past year. And part of implementing EOS is this people analyzer uh, tool that you use. So first you, you analyze everyone and make sure they fit the brand values. And then uh, you also analyze them based off their position if they get it, want it, and have the capacity to do it. And I was having a conversation with Seth, Seth Godin. He was on the podcast two weeks ago. Oh, cool. And one of the things that he said is uh, turnover is okay. And, you know, as a business owner, you're always thinking you want the lowest turnover possible. No. And he's like, no, turnover is okay because if I'm, if I'm steering this ship and that ship is the business and we're going from, say, Florida to New York, but the ship that you want to get on is going from Florida to California, you're on the wrong ship. Or at and, least you got to bounce partway through. Exactly. So, like, if you, if you stay on the wrong ship for too long, you're going to build resentment. You're going to be anger. And it's okay. Like, that someone has a tour of duty for one or two years. Completely okay. That's totally okay. Before, I was like, no, why aren't you on board with this for life? You know, blood in, blood out. Why aren't you in on this? It's like, where's your loyalty? Yeah. And before, yeah. I was like, no, 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 man. Like, it's cool that you don't care as much as I care. I don't expect you to. 
Yeah. An- another big thing that I've changed with this business is pricing. So a lot of first-time entrepreneurs, they care about like product and stuff like that, which is important, but not enough about marketing and distribution. So like getting eyeballs and customers. And in doing that, you pr- like one crazy thing that a lot of first-time founders do, which is what I did, is you price your product too cheap because you're like, I want everyone to be able to afford this, whatever. But then you can't fucking acquire a customer. And so with Hampton, I picked a more higher-end product, a higher-end offering, and I charge more in a higher-end audience. And I charge more so I can provide better value versus like at The Hustle, we would sell... Like, you know, we made... So The Hustle was a daily newsletter. And we were one of the handful of companies that kind of invented like advertising in a, an email. There's no such thing as like an ad network for email. At least when we started, there wasn't. So we helped kind of pioneer that. But then we also had this thing called Trends, which was like a paid subscription service. And it was $300 a year, which is like 25 bucks a month. And I was like, oh, that's great. $300 a year. And then I realized like, dude, it's hard. Like in order to build that into a business that make like you'd have to have 100,000 customers in order to get to $30 million. That's fucking impossible. It's a lot of people. That's a lot of people. And most people who have like ideas for apps, I'm like, hey, just just so you know, like, let's just map this out. To get to 100 million in revenue, which is like the threshold of where you need to be in order to raise like $20 million, you need 10 million people to get this. Tell me how you're going to get 10 million people. Like, it's impossible. It's like really hard. There's a reason there's only like seven social apps that exist that are actually sustainable. And they're some of them are barely sustainable. Twitter, you know, barely sustainable. Um, whereas... There's tens of thousands of enterprise companies you've never fucking heard of that are quietly in the background making hundreds of millions of dollars because they're able to hire a sales force and sell a product that's tens of thousands of dollars a year. And so like with this company, I wanted to sell something that I could actually like invest enough money to make the service good. You know what I mean? In order to make the service good, I had to charge a lot of money. Like you guys probably hate your low cost products. I'd imagine it's probably like the biggest pain in the ass for you guys. Is that true? Yeah. I mean, it makes customer acquisition costs difficult, but because we have such strong retention and loyalty and return customer rate, our lifetime value uh, is very large. So like we can afford higher, you know, CAC, but still like, you know, when I, when I initially launched BPN, my competitive advantage because I had no overhead, literally it was just me in my apartment. I was looking at my margins. I was like, well, I can charge this because yeah, changes, though, when nothing you start goes getting, into it. Then you, you hire office, more people yeah. and you get offices and, you know, insurance and all this stuff. You're covering people's benefits. You realize there's a lot more that goes into this product. So we had, we've had to raise prices over the years, especially with inflation and supply chain and concerns now your product, and issues. You aren't on the cheap end. I buy your stuff at, uh, Central Market. I think I paid fifty bucks. How, how much did I pay there? Forty five for protein. Yeah, it's probably like forty four ninety nine. Yeah, and but like well, a lot of first time young entrepreneurs, they think no one can afford this. And like you know, guys like, like yuppies like me, I'm like, no, dude, I want that. I want the good shit. I'm gonna pay for it. And that's a significantly better market in most cases than uh, you know the cheapest stuff. Yeah, I mean, we we've, we've gone after quality. Like that's why we get everything tested for banned substances. That's why we source quality ingredients. A lot of those are trademarked studied ingredients. It's like we don't cut any corners, but that obviously comes with a, a much larger cost of goods for us. But that's smart that you notice that because most people don't notice that. They just say, I want to I want to charge the least amount because I want the least amount of friction. Yeah. But it's kind of it's kind of in 
the inverse is actually true, which is like kind of the higher it is, the more you buy into it. How, how are you finding you're acquiring customers now with Hampton at a higher price point? Is it Dude, you know word of mouth or you and paid ads? No pay ad, paid ads. The only paid ads we do are if you Google the word Hampton, we have to buy the AdWords because we're not, our SEO isn't good enough to even show up because the URL is six months old or whatever. But my podcast, you know, we get anywhere from sometimes it could be 150,000 downloads per episode, 200,000 downloads per episode. And then our YouTube will get hundreds of thousands of downloads per episode sometimes. So basically I built it, I built it privately um, for six months or so. And I got it to like, I don't remember how much revenue, but millions of dollars. It was just me and one guy did it. And I took all the calls and I interviewed people and put them in groups, whatever. And the website was hampton.squarespace.com. So like we started with no money. And then I launched, I wanted to make sure the product worked and it was, everything was working well. And I also wanted to prove myself I could do it without my audience. Now that I have an audience, when I, the day I announced it on Twitter and um, my pod, we had 5,000 applicants and we will not accept all 5,000 of them. We'll only accept a very tiny fraction of them. And uh, all 5,000 probably don't even want to join, but 5,000 times 8,500, you know, that's like $45 million. Or what is that? Yeah, like $40 million in demand or something like that. So having an audience, like, is like game changing. I mean, when you launch a product on your, what, what's your biggest driver of traffic, YouTube or Instagram? Me personally, uh, they're, they're pretty split. Oh, really? Yeah. Wow. So that's amazing because it's so much easier to just make an Instagram post than it is a YouTube video. But what if when you launch like, uh, I forget what your guys' newest product was, maybe Field Bars? We, we just launched a key lime pie whey protein okay, last so week. When you do a, an announcement on YouTube or Instagram, does it drive just a shitload of sales? It used to, but Did you have a million dollar day. Have, have we had a million dollar day? Yeah. Yes. From you? Um, no, not just from me. You think you could? If I really, like, if I just went on and made a post right now, no, but it'd have to be like a synchronized kind right. of lead up. Like a launch. Yeah. But like the brand has also gotten to a point where it's, it's not reliant on me anymore. That's magic, right? It's, it's, it's exactly like, I mean, it took me three or four years to get to that point. But like we can launch something and I don't have to post anything or talk about it. And it does just as well just by the brands, you know, email marketing, SMS, paid organic platforms. Um, but dude, having an audience is so valuable. So it's, like, it's so valuable. Do you think that this would have worked without you doing the YouTube thing? From the beginning? Yeah. Absolutely not. Yeah. So I am a big fan of audiences. And I'm a big fan of audiences and monetizing in non-influencer ways. So like a, a lot of people will get popular and then they'll sell ads, which is what my company did. Um, but instead, I think you should launch businesses to your audience. And I think that that's a really interesting move. Originally, it was only a handful of people doing it, like the Kardashian type of people, Rihanna. But like now we're seeing a bunch of people do it. Like because you're famous, you have this little side business that does awesome and you don't even like think about it. You know what I mean? That's just spending money and it's a lot of money. I think that more people should build audiences and sell real products. And I think that's like, you're going to see a lot more people doing that. And I think it should be more popular than it is. Um, With Hampton, what, what is like, you know, you said you had 5,000 applicants, but not all of them are going to be selected. What is kind of like your minimum requirements? So, yeah. So there's just the minimums are at least 2 million in revenue or 5 million in funding, or you've sold a business for at least 5 million. 
most businesses that our average revenue is about 25 million. So we prefer like the 10 to 20 million, but there are some people who are just starting out, but they've previously sold the company for like $30 million. So it's like, yeah, you, you could do it. So we're not going always founders or executives too. So right now it's CEOs or founders only. Okay. Maybe, maybe we can do that other like CFOs, chief legal, whatever. So you have to meet that minute, those minimum threshold requirements. Number two, you have to be digital first. So you have to be, you don't have to be like a tech company in that like Casper or BPN It's not technically a tech company, but you guys are speaking the same language, you know, talking about CAC, things like that. Mm-hmm. So you, it's got to be a digital business. And then you, we interview everyone and you can't be an asshole. So if you meet all those, then oftentimes we'll send you an invite. So this, my business is a community-based business. That's kind of, it's like a peer-based business. I got the inspiration because, have you heard of a Vistage? No. They do this. They've been around since the 50s. They were doing like 400 million in revenue and like 150 million in EBITDA. And they sold two years ago for like uh, one point something billion. To who? Um, some Gridiron some Capital, just some PE firm. Because these businesses, if you set it up and you empower the community, they kind of run themselves. And so what I was when I was starting this business, I used, have you heard of Ikigai? I haven't, no. It's like a Japanese concept. And so visualize this almost like a Venn diagram that kind of looks like the Olympic rings, but there's four rings and it's what the world wants, what the world is willing to pay for, what you're good at and what you like to do. And the ideal situation is to find something in the middle that overlaps with all of those things. And so you seek out things. And so for me, I was like, well, I like entrepreneurship. I like community building. I don't want to do a low end product because I don't want to have to go for the masses. And I want to create a business that could become a billion dollar company just because of ego reasons. And that excites me. It's like you wanting to run a sub three hour marathon. It's just some goal you made up and it's exciting. And so I came up with this business based off of a bunch of research where I'm like, I think this business is one of those businesses where people will like dismiss just like newsletters. So like the hustle that could have been a hundred million dollar year company. I sold too early, but I know it could be because my friend is doing it now. And with this business, I was like, I'm not going to sell early this time. And I think I can make it into a billion dollar company. And I wanted to pick something that people would kind of dismiss and not think could be a cool company. I'm like, no, I can do the math. I know this can get there. Like physics allows this to work and the market is big enough. It just, can I execute? So that's one of the reasons why. And it also fit all of my like wants and needs and skill set and things like that. That's why I like this business model. I think it's really cool. Is that requiring a lot of your time right now? Most of your time? The first six months it was... 100 hour, 100 hour weeks. I hired a CEO. So now I'm more like come and hang out with you and do things like this. Um, and I, but I really have to put most of my focus on my podcast because having it, that audience is essential for building the brand. So that's where I spend most of my time actually is on content creation. Same shit as you. When you were running your company, how many hours a day were business building versus content creation? I mean, at, at the, the peak of it, like when we really started to grow before I stepped down from the CEO role, I would say two to three hours a week was content. Oh, that's insane. The rest was all meetings, calls. What a waste, right? And like, I, I just wasn't happy. You know, like. That's such a waste of like, because there's literally only one person who could do what you did content wise, but probably 50 people, or there's probably three people just in your organization who could have done the other stuff. Yeah. And then that's like having that realization. That's when I was like, I got, I got to get out of this role. I got to get back to creating because I spent the last decade creating and building this audience and community. And that is leverage for the brand. Were you editing your videos early on? 
early on, up until 2019, I was editing all my own videos. That's so much work, isn't it? To be honest, I still, I just recently started jumping back into some edits in Jordan, my creative director. And you actually know how to use like the software? Yeah, it's because I I actually enjoy it. Like Jordan gets so mad at me because I I try to hop back in the edits and he's like, dude, you shouldn't be doing that. But part of me like likes getting back in the edits once in a while. But up until 2019, I was editing for those first seven years. I edited all my stuff. How long did one video take to edit? And BPN stuff. One YouTube video would take... I mean, it could take three hours. It could oh, take that. seven hours. Dude, that's insane. I took, um, your Leadville thing was like a movie. That was amazing. That took way longer. But I took, um, Casey Neistat had a course called Monthly, Monthly, is it called Monthly? It's like a platform where you like learn something in a month. And he like did a video course and I took it and I made like a video and I was like, dude, I, I don't, I don't enjoy this editing. You think that these YouTubers, it's just coming up with good ideas. It's like, no, man, you got to like practice. Like it's like an art form to like it sit is. there in that computer and do that. Like, I don't like that, but I love like his edits. And I'm like, oh, that's so simple. Like anyone could do that. And then I start doing it. I'm like, this guy's Picasso, man. I can't do it. He's good. He's good. And your stuff was good too. Your edits were great. And like you start like when, when I was like trying to make these videos for fun, you don't realize that like you're doing like, I don't even know what you're doing. Dozens or even hundreds of clips per thing. And you got to like find them and chop them up. It, it's hard work. I didn't yeah. realize how hard that was. I mean, like I can edit a video now, but it's nowhere close to like, for example, what Jordan and Ian can do. Like I can't create the videos that they create. My editing is more like baseline, just like storyboarding and putting clips together and cutting and adding so did music. Did you study like, like build up tension here, release tension, build it up again here, like get to the arc? Like, did you like? No. Like what I would do, like the way I learned editing was actually through Casey. So I found Casey's videos, Casey Neistat's videos when I was in Korea in 2016. And I found Casey. I was in Korea. I had all this free time. So I would go out into Seoul and I'd film stuff similar to the way Casey would film. And then I would edit it similar to the way Casey would edit. Uh And that's how I learned how to put videos together. I think I remember seeing you like slam a cabinet and like, do, do all these like what transitions are, yeah and he like had these like really like of him hitting shit yeah you know what i mean so like that's how i learned how to edit um but like i would just fill out the story it's like i would the way i edit now it's like i'll i'll put together like 30 seconds and i'll go back and watch it and i'll think in my head okay like where should this story where should this video go next is this going to lose people? Is it going to gain attention? Is it going to get people excited? So I would use music and clips and like transitions and storytelling to keep people engaged because I learned that through Casey. But there wasn't like a, I need to create this story out of this video. Our team does that really good. A good job with that. Like the Leadville doc, like that took them I think eight weeks to edit because it's telling this story that like brings in the audience. Yeah, and you guys did a good job of having like a premiere and stuff. Yeah, it was. It was epic. I watched it like when the I say like I sat down on my TV. I watched it. That was probably the best video we've ever produced, put out. I mean, there was so much work that went into that. This team was climbing mountains. I got to the top at Hope's Pass, which is like a three mile climb up, like three thousand feet, and the video team was at the top of Hope's Pass. I was like, "How'd you guys get up here?" They're like we climbed. That's insane. But for this one shot. Uh, but yeah, like, there was so much work that went into that video. How many times are you getting recognized? Like when you walk through Austin, are you, is it guaranteed that someone's going to say, what's up? Uh, pretty good, pretty good chance. But it's cool because people will just say, 
at going more. Uh, that's typically what it is. Like when I'm running downtown on Ladybird Lake Loop, I'll see going more hats, BPN gear, or I'll just hear someone yell going more across the trail, which is super cool. That's badass, right? Yeah, it's how many podcast guests do you have? Like you, I, I was telling you earlier, and I, and I and I thought you maybe thought I was bullshitting, but I was like, no, I watch all your stuff. Like I know, I know what's going on. You're like saying, yeah, we're doing this. I'm like, yeah, I know. You, I, I watched the video. I already know you're expanding. I the appreciate thing. that. Like I know it all. Do a lot of your guests uh, like actually pay attention to all your stuff? No, not most. So like usually when people come in, like I have to give context and explain of like how we built this and how we got to this point. Um, sometimes people come in and they're like, oh, I thought this was just like a podcast studio and you like ran a small supplement shop in the back. No, like I've been building this business for 11 years now. Like I put everything into this thing. That's why like building an audience is important is because you get like, you can get so bought into this shit. And then I was like, well, I bought BPN just because I'm like, well, I actually didn't look at the labels. I don't know anything about it, but I know what Nick stands for. Therefore, like I, I just trust that he is doing the right thing and it's like a safe product. I know, you know you, I mean? you've talked about the difference between an audience and a community. Yeah. And you've used those two words multiple times throughout this, this conversation so far. You say like building an audience is really important, but also having a community is just as important. Can you talk about the two? Yeah. And which to focus on? So people use that all the time and they change them all the time. And I'm like, no, it's actually a huge difference. And it's really important because it's a, it's a very, it's like a tactical difference. So an audience is one to many. It's Nick posting videos. It's Sam hosting a podcast. A community is many to many. And that, and it has to have like a location in which that's happening, whether it's physical or digital. And the way that you know you have one or the other is quit creating content for a month and come back and what happens. Or with a community, you quit making, you, you the creator, quit making stuff for a month and you should come back and you should have more it should be more content, more interactions than when you left. It, it should grow like exponential, exponentially because it's many to many. And they're a really big difference because when I started the hustle, I kind of started it like you where it was like my name was tied to the brand. And that sucks because it's actually great because it makes it easier to start. But it sucks to scale and to sell because the people are like, well, what happens if you leave? So you have to do a good job of getting beyond you. But with a, the reason I wanted a community and not an audience was like I want it to run itself and to work on its own. And so you sort of had of a community. Um, at least I haven't explored all your stuff. Maybe Hybrid Athlete, the app, might have one. But it's like, if you create, quit creating content, I don't think that BPN's not going to go away, but like Nick Bear's relevance will be, just like Casey Neistat's relevance has gone away. And he has to do all the work to create that. Like, if he, if he isn't filming something and he's in his videos, it's less, it's, it's not him to me. You know what I'm saying? Yeah. Versus like, if you create a subreddit and people are active in it and they're just talking about their own shit, then that you don't have to be there at all and your brand could still live on. You know what I mean? So, so what ways can creators build communities outside of say your traditional Facebook group? Well, I would say you don't have to have a community. So like, don't do it just because you want to do it or because you think you need to do it. The thing about community is like the creator has to be very actively involved in the beginning and then can really quickly get out. But I think Facebook groups are an awesome first place. Um, I like, uh, I used to think Slack was horrible for building communities. Now, if you're building a professional community, I think it's the way to go. All the young kids for like anything Gen Z related use, 
I don't even know what it's it called. Discord. Discord. I can't. I'm too old. I can't. I haven't figure. gotten on it yet, but I've heard everyone talk about uh, it. I can't figure it out. It's like it looks like Slack, but it's way more complicated. Um, what's another good way to build a community? I think that most people, when they think of building a community, they'll build their own website and have a forum. Dude, that's so hard to do. That's really challenging to pull that off. Uh, most users don't go just to a website in order to like interact on the forum. It's really hard to do. And the people who have pulled that off, they're very valuable. It's a very valuable business. Like I've actually heard you mention that on a, a, a podcast you were on. And it was really good timing because we built out the BPN training app this past year. And within that app, version two that we were going to build that I got priced out and did a full discovery on was a uh, Reddit type thread or, or community board within the app. And we were going to start building this out. And I was like, mm, I don't know if we should build this out yet. Then I heard your podcast talking about that. I was like, we'll pump the brakes. Dude, people, it's just hard. It's just, it's just like, if you look at your own behavior, like there's probably only a handful of those things that you go to that, that you actually like have a username and you actually like the thing about a community is it's like a marketplace and a good marketplace has liquidity, meaning there's a, the balance of, so like eBay, you sell a car, you have a car, someone who wants to buy a car. Liquidity means you need uh, people to be buying lots of cars and for new buyers to keep coming and new cars to keep coming. To make a community work, that means you need lots of people posting content and lots of people consuming content and then more people posting and reacting and then more people consuming, that type of thing. Most communities like have like a 0.5 to or a 1% contribution rate, uh, contributor rate. Meaning if you have a hundred active users, maybe one or two or three people will be making the content and the rest of the people will be consuming it. So you kind of need a lot of people or you have to figure out how to make that rate higher. You make that rate higher by making it easier to consume. So a Facebook group, a lot of times the Facebook groups that I have will have a 10 or 15% rate of active members to posters so or consumers versus posters because they're already on Facebook already. So it makes it really easy right. versus nickbear.com slash forum. Not that many people are going to go to that. And so your rate of posters and consumers is just going to be out of whack and it's going to suck. And so you have to remove as much friction as possible in order to get that liquidity in, in your kind of marketplace or community. You know what I mean? So I guess the, the argument is like, there isn't necessarily like you need to build an audience first and then focus on building a community. It's, kind of goes back to the same thing of should you bootstrap or fundraise what what is it that serves your purpose yeah and you don't need a community like if you're an audience company just be an audience company just do that and be awesome at it um but they're different and like for example reddit that's a community you ever go to reddit uh occasionally so i love reddit and like if they were to launch a media company which they tried to do it wasn't that good cuz they're not like a content audience company. They're a really good community company. You know what I mean? They're a, and versus like if New York Times, which is an audience company, try to create like a community, they have like a Facebook group for like some of their stuff, but it's like, that's not their specialty. I don't think is like community building. You know what I'm saying? So that, that makes a lot more sense the way you described it there. They're like two different things. Like it's a different skill set. Um, similar, but different. You know what I mean? Yeah. So like managing communities are, is tough. And there's people who can do it who can't make a YouTube video and make people like them like you have. You know yeah, what I mean? That makes sense. But like you have got a pretty good community. The best part about you, I told you I was going to bring this up, is your natty versus not natty stuff. It's a lot of it. Dude, it's a lot of it. 
and you said you don't read it. Dude, that shit's the best. It is so good. I say let it go. Uh, not let it go as in, like, let it go as in, like, let that shit happen. You should let the, you should, if I was you, I would even make content just to get people to keep talking about that. Uh, which camera is on? Guys, I'm here right now. He's definitely jacked and he's shredded and he's huge. But you're like jacked and huge and shredded enough that it's very clearly that you're very gen genetically gifted and you're not on anything. Well, Besides that other needle that I, I did see some, <laughs> I'm joking. There was no needles. Uh, well, the, the thing is like, if I, I could really lean into that content and I know that controversy gains a lot of traction and attention. But you but don't even reference it. I don't reference it. And you should like, reference it. The only like only reference we ever did to it, and it gained no attention because I think we just did it so properly. It's through my entire build and my entire cut. We got blood work done. We filmed the blood work. We we shared the results. And like no one ever commented anything about it. There was never a comment about it. But like there's all these threads, there's these videos, there's these articles. I read them all the time. And I used to. Even like comments, like I used Why to read you comments. Post? And you don't, you don't reply on let's run. You never replied. And I, if I, if I go on the, the let's run like thread, it will mess with my head for, for months. And I'm just being very honest. Like that stuff. But why would it mess with your head if you're not doing anything wrong? Like, why do you care? Because of like a, a few things. One, I hate when people speak on my behalf. So it's one thing to say like, is Nick bear natty or not? But when then there's people saying Nick bear is taking X, Y, Z and they're just making these claims about me. Yeah. It's like, how do I fight that? So that's that's one reason. The second is that there's a fear of the, the way it tarnishes what I've built. And I'm, right. I'm always afraid that there's, I know there's people actively in this world trying to like take me down right now. And that actually does scare me. Why do they want to take you down? What's their argument? I, think that, I mean, I'm sure there's people trying to take you down. Yeah, but they would say like, I'm an asshole. For me, I think it's just that like, I'm a, Honestly, the only thing I can think of, I'm a nice guy who's built something through hard work and people want to believe that there's something else that I've done to get here. Is that, the, and that's like steroids? That or like anything else. They're like, there's always like just comments. Right. Okay. You know, like there's like, people are always looking for like, you just don't have like a, I, I've talked to a lot of people who know you and everyone says, dude, he's so nice. He does all the right stuff. And like maybe maybe there's been times where you made business decisions that were only mistakes, but like I've never heard anyone actually say anything where it's like, dude, that guy's not real or or like he's not really actually strong or like like everyone I've talked to says like, dude, he puts in the work, he eats well. Like everyone says that I've talked to about you and there's probably been 10 or 20 people. Yeah, I mean, my only assumption is that like, you know, I've chosen the hard right. I say this all the time. I've chosen the hard right over the easy wrong for the last decade plus of my life. I think people are just looking for, well, where's the hole? Like, wh wh where did he mess up? Where did he go wrong? Yes, I've made some poor business decisions. And Those I've, are just mistakes. Those aren't... I've made mistakes, but like nothing intentionally uh, destructive along the way. I wasn't referencing anything, anything, by the way. I was just assuming you've made a business mistake. Yeah, yeah I've, I've made plenty of business mistakes. But uh, I think that's one of the reasons like, I don't allow myself to read the comments or go on these articles and these threads or watch the videos is for me... I already know what they're going to say. So what win is there to like soak up my energy? And I just only put that in that mind space. It's, it's really easy to say like, oh, just don't let it affect you. But for some reason, it still does for me. Well, when I first started following you, I was like, oh, this guy has to be on steroids because he's so big. And then I saw your dad and I was like, oh, this guy, 
look at what he's come from. Yeah. And then I saw the, there's this other guy who I kept seeing your videos like, oh, that's his brother. I'm like, oh, look at that guy. That guy's an ox. Like you guys, you could just, there. there's genetic freaks out there and they exist and you guys are that. And then, uh, and then I got to know you in your videos and I'm like, dude, there's no way this guy does anything that is like even borderline ethical or unethical. Like it's very clear. You could get, watch five of his videos and you understand like what he stands for. There, um, there was this guy who, uh, sent me a message on, on Instagram the other day and he said, Hey man, like I'm training the exact same way you train. I'm eating the exact same way you eat, but I don't look like you. Tell me the truth. What are you on? I'm like, dude, you're like, you're neglecting two very important things. One, the time in which like you have to train and eat a certain way to get to a certain point and two genetics. They're real. They're so real. Some people will train their ass off for years and eat the cleanest diet and make like very small progress. You're going to make progress regardless, but like very small progress. Then there's people who can start eating right and training heavy for six months and they turn into a different person. And then also you had a guy, one of your videos you ran, I think he ran a sub five minute mile with you. I forget exactly. Mitch, Mitch Amons. And then he, did he also like squat 500 pounds? Oh, sorry. That's uh, Adam Clink. Yeah, he yeah. works here. Yeah. And like, no disrespect to Adam, but like you are more of a bodybuilder, like looking guy than him. And he outperformed you. Yeah. Like it just falls differently on some people. You know what I mean? It's the same with me. Like I, I was joking with you that when you were at your weak point and I was at my strong point, we had almost the same numbers. You were still a little bit better. I don't look like you. Like it didn't, and it didn't matter if I would perform as good as you. Like people just look different. You right. know what I mean? Yeah. It, it's one of those things like I fought it online for so long. And I'm finally at a point where I'm like, screw it. I'm just gonna keep doing my thing. And just like head down the same way I built the brand and stay in my lane. And I know there's going to be more videos. I know there's going to be more articles, but I just avoid it. Yeah. I, but I, if I was in your position, I would make jokes, but I think your judgment is better than mine. <laughs> you know what I mean? I yeah. think your judgment is better than mine. But then once I saw your dad do that six minute mile and he looked the way he looks, I was like, oh, this dude just like, he was born, he was just. Born. I've never seen. Uh, I've never seen your mother. Did your mother pass away? She, uh, she passed away in 2019. I'm sorry. Um, she, I mean, she was also like great shape. I mean, my mom. My mom was running like five k's weekly uh, before she got sick. My um. And what's your heritage? Do you know? Uh, I think there's some German roots in there. Just white though. Yeah, <laughs> that's what I say. I, there's people, nothing special. Man, people ask me, they're like, oh, I'm just fucking white. I'm Midwestern. My wife is half black, half Jewish, and so our kids are gonna be white, black, like Russian Jew, a little bit Italian. And I'm like praying. I'm like, this kid's going to be an ox. This is going to be a superhuman because we're going to have like a little bit of all, yeah. uh, a little bit of everything. And I'm just like praying for that. Like my like joke with my wife. I'm like our baby, like, you know how like bulldogs are like always have issues, but like a mutt is like, will live forever and they're healthy. Yeah. That's what our child's going to be. We want that mutt. We want a, a, a nice, uh, diverse, genetically diverse kid. Is that, is that part of, uh, I'm assuming you bought the ranch after the acquisition. Every time someone sells a company, they go through a little bit of a crisis where they're like, what do I do next? And they think probably A, they'll be successful at everything because they were successful at this and B, like, what's the point? I, I should just, what, what, what should I do? So I wanted to get the Airbnbs because I like them. And I always like wanted to own a lot of land, partially because in case the world ends, I want a place to go. And partially because like I associate that with like, what a man should do is like own land, which are both kind of flawed thinking. So I bought this place in Fredericksburg, Texas, marathonranch.com. 
I um I was gonna make like a fitness hotel. Then I got this. I bought this place. It's like twenty acres. It's really beautiful. And I realized that a I hate real estate. It's so boring. It's really boring. It takes forever. Like you have a an idea and it takes like six months to see results. I went through a phase where I was like, I'm gonna get into real estate, dude. I thought it was like the greatest thing ever. I still I'm like, oh, you guys do that because like you have patience and you're good at spreadsheets. I do this other shit because I don't have patience and I'm good at computers. Um, and then B, most people just want like a nice place to live. They don't need like that fancy of a gym. So I built a gym out there, but I was like, I'm gonna do a cold plunge, a sauna, this and that. And then I was like, let's just do like a squat rack, dumbbells and a ping pong table. And it's more than enough. And so, it's um, beautiful. Yeah, it's cool. You've, you've, been, you've seen the website? Yeah, I was on the website going through the gallery. It's beautiful. It's cool. And so uh, it's doing well. It's doing well. Um, but if I had to do it again, I don't know if I would. It's just like, do you, you own a home? I do own a home, yeah. Do you like owning a home? Uh, I don't not like owning a home. I don't mind it. So I would be happy to rent forever or for a long period of time. I, the next time I'm going to be a, buy a piece of property or like a, my home... I own a home here and I own some other properties. One day soon, I'm going to sell it all and I want to rent until my children are old enough to go to school. And then I want to buy a home that I'll live in for like 30 years. Around them? Wherever like the best school is, like it's like this will be our place for 30 years. Yeah. The reason I don't like owning property is like there's so many costs that most people don't realize. So I've, I'm like on this big crusade where it's like I, I think buying a primary not cash flowing home is actually not a good investment, but we're told it is. I think it's not. It's better to keep your money in the bank and then, or money in uh, stocks and bonds and things like that, and then instead rent. But you should buy if it makes you happy. But don't confuse yourself and call it like a good investment. At best, it's a store value, meaning it will grow likely with inflation. But sometimes you'll make a lot of money. Sometimes you're going to lose money. But I don't think you should consider it an investment. It's just a store value. But anyway, I think most people think that when they buy a home, they're paying down the principal. No, dude, you're paying the interest pay, for the first 20 years. You're paying down the interest, yeah. Yeah, and also, yeah, it, it's crazy. So I think that like buying a home should be an emotional decision, not a financial decision. You should buy what you can afford, but you should do it because you like it, just like you do with a car. Um, and like just owning stuff, what I've realized, it drags me down. Like, so I have one nice car and I kind of even regret getting a nice car. I just hate the idea of like these things. They Sometimes they start to, own you versus the other way around. Mm -hmm. So that's a little bit of the downside of like owning Airbnbs. Um, but I do have a manager who manages it. Um, so I'm mostly hands off and I give them 20% of the revenue, which is a lot, but I don't touch it. But it is awesome to go out there and just shoot guns and ride motorcycles and shit. How much time do you guys spend out there versus time you spend booking it? Oh, uh, ideally I will never go out there because it's booked all the time. But um, I, I only go out there two times a month. I have mo like four wheelers out there. So I'll go out there and shoot yeah, I've seen guns. your videos. Are you like riding little just being red bikes and stuff out there. Yeah. yeah. Just doing redneck stuff. And I'm not like a country guy. I don't know anything about shit, but I like, I bought a gun and like learned how to use it. And so I like to shoot stuff. And um, there's, we have a really nice gym out there and it says just the bare minimums, but it's awesome because it's huge and we could pull up the garage and like see the sunset. And so it's really fun. Um, are you thinking about getting into Airbnbs? No, I, I at one point I did, but like, in this next chapter of life for me, I want to do more with less and I don't want to be attached to all these things. That's like, my point. Yeah. I, I just like, like, are you, now that you have a family, are you thinking about moving? Uh, eventually. And do you think like, oh, moving is going to be a hassle because I have to like sell the house, do all this stuff. I'm already worried about the things that are breaking. Like clear example, this past weekend we were in the pool and this little, uh, like 
Like tile, this, little, this little tile fell off. And I was like, oh my gosh, I'm going to have to fix this before we move. My wife's like, when are we moving? I'm like, I don't know, but when we move, like, I'm going to have to I fix hate this. that. Yeah, I do the same thing. Instead, I'd rather just call landlord and just say, hey, this broke, fix it, please. <laughs> yeah. I'd rather do that any day of the week. I'd rather do that any of the week. So I split time. I live in Brooklyn and Austin. Um, I rent a place up there and I own a place here. I The renting is just so much more stress-free. And uh, I understand when you have a kid and you want to like go to school and stuff like that, you, you it's better to maybe own emotionally. But now I'm totally happy renting. So when you, when you sold the business, I'm assuming it's just one day... You get this a bunch big, of money. This, this lump of money just ends up in your bank account? One day, there a wire, yeah, like you're on the phone and you do a wire and then you just keep refreshing your computer and you just get tens of millions of dollars in, in your bank account. And I called the bank ahead of time. I, I went down to the Chase and I was like, um, and I was sitting with a teller and I was like, I don't know if I'm supposed to tell you this or some one of these guys at the desk, but like over the next few days, I'm going to get an influx of money. I want to make sure you're cool with it. And they're like, okay, like how much? And I was like, and I said the number and it was like tens of millions of dollars. And she was like shocked. And she's like, yeah, that's fine. And I felt like, are you about to rob me? Like what's going on? Like am I a target now? Yeah. But yeah. And then I also got stock in the company. And here's the crazy part. The stock vested over like a year or something. The day we sold it was $350 a share. And then it grew to like $850. So whatever that is, a double and a half. So 2.5 X, it like grew as we, it was vesting. And then it went back down. Uh, so like, I, but I've never sold any of the stock so far. So I got a bunch of cash and a bunch of stock. And then now my podcast, MFM, I sold that with the company, but they pay me uh, a lot of money to continue hosting it. So is that your only tie to the hustle now is, is hosting the podcast? Yeah. So the hustle turned into this thing called HubSpot Media. So HubSpot Media, I think they announced that they do 1.5 billion in revenue. Most of their new users came through their blog, but their blog got so big that they're like, we need more channels. Let's buy a newsletter. And they use that to get to sell software because we had a lot of like business owners. And then when I sold the company, I was like, hey, I'm out of here the day we sell, but I'm going to continue hosting the podcast. And they said, great, that's what we want you to do. So I host that and then they pay me a big fee as if I'm like, you know, like a like talent, like a Howard Stern. Yeah. Um, and so I'm able to promote my own stuff on there. I'm able to say whatever I want. They've never censored me, but I get paid a large amount of money to do it. So I still have ties to them and I'm still buddies and homies with those guys, but I have nothing to do with it. So like anything they do, if you like it or hate it, I had nothing, not, nothing to do with it. Did your life change in a way that you thought it would after the acquisition? You know how people say money doesn't make you happier? It kind of does. <laughs> it does. Like people say like, well, you still have problems. You don't have any money problems. And I'm like, yeah, but that's all I had was like money problems. Like I would like not pay on the bus sometimes. I didn't have any money. Like, so the fact that like I can like have really great healthcare or like I could just call someone to come over and like work on a thing that's broke and I don't have to do it. it yeah. So that made me feel way better. But your happiness definitely plateaus. So like it, the the like uh like you get paid and you have this like dopamine hit and then you go right back down to just a little bit above where you were before. If that makes sense, I think mm -hmm. humans get used to shit real fast. I mean, have you ever heard of how like someone got their leg amputated and like six months later they're back to where they were before in terms of happiness? Like we adapt super fast, and so things you get used to everything really quickly. Have you ever read the book The Molecule of More? No. What does it say? Do I you, you always want more? Pretty much. It's like all about dopamine and how dopamine controls our, our lives and addictions and wants. I saw and you needs. reference it before. Yeah, it's a, it's a really good book, but 
what's the takeaway? Is there a cure to this or is it, is the answer it's never enough? I think it's being aware of like what dopamine in the brain actually wants us to desire. And there's certain things like they, they explain it like kind of similar to what you just described. Like say a cheeseburger, for example, like say you're on your diet and you're really strict on that diet and someone puts a cheeseburger in front of you and your dopamine goes nuts. Like you desire that, that, that burger so much. You take a bite and that first bite is amazing. You're just like, holy shit, this is so good. And with every bite after that, you get less dopamine released and like you have less enjoyment. And then by the time you're done with your burger, you're like, shit, I just cheated on my diet. So it's like all about how the things that we desire, the things that we, th- that we want aren't actually the things that we like. Right. And we, we chase things that we want as opposed to things that we actually like and need. I've got this friend who uh, is a billionaire and he, on his way up to becoming a billionaire, he was like going to take a company public. And he like went to this guy's house who had a $10 million home. Like they were meeting with bankers. And the guy in the $10 million home was like, yeah, this little shack, it's pretty nice. The guy down the street's got a $30 million one. He was like, what? Are you kidding me? And then he like goes to the, like this guy who's got like a $50 million or no, he went to a guy's house who was worth $500 million. And the guy was like, it's pretty great. I got most everything I need, but can't afford a sports team. And then he went to a guy, another guy's house who's worth $5 billion, And the guy was complaining about like, yeah, but I don't have Amazon. I didn't start Amazon. And so my friend is always like, and the thing that I've learned is it's never enough. No matter what you have, it's never, it, it, you're without being conscious about it and trying to break this habit, it feels like it's never enough. And like, I remember thinking if I had what I had today, I will never want more. I'm set forever. And then after about six months, you're like, yeah, but I could do it more. What if I had a three houses? You know what I mean? Right. And I think you need to fight that, but it is natural. It's the same way with like running, you know, you're like, yeah, but if I would have went harder a mile 20 instead of stopping for water, I bet you I could have broke 30 seconds off that time. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. I was actually thinking about that on my run this morning. Uh, I was listening to a, a Ben Greensfield podcast before I went running. And what time he, did you run at 4 a.m.? Uh, I started my run this morning at like 5.40. How do you listen to a podcast at that. So, so I wake up at five today. My schedule was a little off today. I woke up at five. Oh, lazy. But Charlie woke up before that. So Charlie woke up at like 445. So I got up, gave her a bottle. What time do you go to bed? Put her back to sleep like 10. Okay. So she woke up early, which gave me like an additional 30 minutes to drink a coffee and, and listen to some, some podcasts before I went running. Cause I wanted to go to the bathroom before I started my run. And this Ben Greensfield podcast was, he's a spiritual guy. And he was just talking about how in the Bible, God said that he will over deliver and give you more than you could have ever desired in your life. And I was thinking about that when I was running, I was like, man, I got like, I get more than I need right now. Like I'm on this early morning run. My daughter's asleep. My, my wife's waking up. I'm running in my neighborhood to my house. Then I'm going to go into work on the parts of the business that I want to work on. There's nothing else in my life right now that I, I, I need. But you still get like depressed sometimes. Uh, not as much as I used to, honestly, since my daughter was born, like not as much, like my perspective has changed completely, but I used to, I used to like be in this flow and be so content and happy with what I was doing. And then I would see one of my competitors growing faster, but I, I used to, I used to always look at what other people were doing. Like comparison is a thief of joy, right? Uh, 
But ever since my daughter was born and I've had more clarity into like what I want and what I need, this morning was one of those mornings where I was just thinking, I got everything I need. Like, I'm pretty happy. But that might change tomorrow. Right? Like, there's ebbs and flows. There is ebbs and flows. Yeah, I mean, for sure. I mean, I always think, I'm like, well, if I get this, I'll be happy. You hit it and then you're, it's pretty sick and then you go right back to normal. Right. Um, Small celebration and then like back to baseline. 100%. That's what I think. Well, Sam, man, I is this going to be a good it. pod? This is a great pod. It's like we, we covered a lot. We I want this to be the best pod. I've listened to Ryan Hall. I've listened to, uh, who else did I tell you? Uh, Nick Simmons. I've listened to uh, Ken Rideout. What else? I, I don't, I can't be better than them because Nick and Ryan are Olympic medalists, I believe. Ken is just hardcore. Badass. So I can't outstory them. But maybe somehow we can outvalue them. I mean, there's a lot, there's a lot of value takeaway in here. And I think why I was really excited for this conversation is, you know, watching you step down from the CEO role and then build the business and sell the business and then identify when I posted from strength to strength. When you identified that, I was like, all right, founders get founders. No one else called you out? No. <laughs> no. I, like founders, founder, like founders. They get founders. Our CEO, Kat, she was a founder of a business. And like, that's why we get along so well. She, found, she co-founded Mush Overnight Oats. Um, so she just like gets the struggle. She gets like the hard time. She gets the, the emotional roller coaster of which it is. That's a huge company, right? Yeah, it's, it's, a, it's a massive company. Yeah. But um, I think this was a really good conversation. Appreciate it. That's a wrap.